Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Can you hear me okay? I can. How are you, man? Okay. Good. Good morning. How you doing? Yeah. I'm all right. I'm all right. Just uh, doing the things here. Let me Your podcasts are big time. They're big? Yeah. Well, they're speaking truth. Thanks, man. No, speak your truth, man. Um, that's why we're here. And did you hear my pod with uh, Jason Williams, who works at Retool? I have not listened to any of your pods. <clears throat> okay. And I think that's probably <laughs> good because I won't be self-editing. Okay. Um, I'm gonna pl- I plan to do it afterwards. I've just been slammed with the COVID. Yeah. I mean, I'm the only guy fitting in Minnesota right now because all the shops are uh, dealing with sales and repairs. Yeah. So it's just. It's crazy, right? It's like feast or famine. and It's just gnarly, you know, and I'm getting, and the, the interesting thing is I'm getting a lot of, the clients are just different, you know, I mean, I'm getting a lot of people that I can tell when somebody's used to dealing with the shop exclusively because they're a lot more demanding of what they want and they're a lot more, you know, it's a mess. It's yeah. A mess. Is, but there's an intensity that's just, that feels really kind of, you know, gross. It's, it, you want to boost sales, just make it harder to get things. Right. You know. So what are you doing? You know, I heard you're getting a new studio. Are you going to get a new studio? Yeah, I've got a new studio. I moved in. Um, it's not completely done yet, but it's functional. The new space has more, um, a lot more light. Ooh, we like which light. is like the old the old one had really indirect access to some natural light the new space is super bright tons of windows and really good condition so that's awesome yeah so big improvement there and uh getting things dialed is pretty cool it's a space that was built out by an architect and he was gonna build build it out and have his office there with like three or four other people and then his whole business model changed and he decided to not have an office and that was a COVID thing, I think. And also he got a long-term contract doing sustainable housing up in one of the Dakotas. So he's traveling a lot up there to do that. And he realized he didn't need the office. So basically it was like a long rectangle and he built out this plywood platform that's six inches tall across half of it, the long way. Mm-hmm. And then he built these plywood desks. So I took out the desks in the front and now I'm, I dropped in, I cut out a platform Smart. Um, cutout for the, and I'm using the Saris MP1. Oh, nice. So now people don't have to like step up to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I'm going to do the same thing for rollers. I just haven't done that part yet. And so then I can teach people how to ride rollers and they've got a platform built around the rollers, kind of like Jerry's setup. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to do that too. I, I've been waiting to get time to do that, but I do want to get inset rollers because people ride off camber all the time. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. He's so much more on rollers. Yep. And, the, uh, and then I've also got... Um, I've got I've got in my plans to do the same thing. I have I, I use the fit bike for sizing. You know I don't use it really for fitting, but um, it's it's hard to get people are get nervous. The higher they get, the more nervous they get. Yeah. And having it in having it step having it inset where they can get over it easily, mm-hmm. I think it's hard. Yeah. And rollers, yeah. I mean, it's a no brainer. I mean. Yeah. And it looks super cool. It looks cool. Uh, it looks like it's a nice clean area. Mm-hmm. You know, keep everything tucked away and just have a few select things out and, and just have it be part of that experience. Yeah. yeah. And then fitting is so, 
I know you'll understand this too, like fitting is so environmentally intensive as far as the work we do, like not only seeing the bike in a certain perspective and environment that you're used to, which has its probably pros and cons, but also having access to all the tools that you need. And there's so many tools, so many like bits of tape and random wrenches and like random, you know, if you're doing movement screens, like all that environmental aspects when people ask me all the time, like, Oh, do you want to come, you know, drive to San Diego and do a bunch of bike fits? And I'm like, no, not really. (laughs) There are a thousand tools that I need that won't work in a hotel room and you're on a floor in a hotel room, like trying to address somebody's cleat and whatever. And it's just, it's a mess. Yeah, it's a mess. I got the same situation. So the, the studio I moved into three years ago was big. It's like, um, it's like 800 square feet big, but like 20 foot ceilings. And I have really, it's all based around the stand in the middle. I do some, I haven't been doing a whole lot of touching of people since COVID started, but I do have like a screening area and stuff like that. Um, but what's great is that I can stand, I, it's all about, to me, it's all about being able to see the person clearly in the yep. middle of the room from a bunch of different angles with plenty of, with plenty of room. So I can walk around yes. um, and see stuff. So I totally agree. And the, and the natural light, I, you know, it's got two doors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have to, you know, my buddy, Paul Crumch is the guy, you might know him, the guy who wants to knock you away, but he, he hooked me up. I wouldn't have been able to get that space without him. Yeah. But, it's nice. And I agree. It's like, and then with yours and it's quiet and you can do your thing much better. Yep. But yeah, it takes, it's a ridiculous amount of space necessary to be able to do our job. It really is. Yeah. I, we probably have similar size studios from the sounds of it. Mine's, I think it's 972 square feet total, but the back spot is occupied by my friend Don who runs Panache Cycleware. So I'm probably about 750 or something. I don't know. So you still have access to like a saw and a vice and a stair cutter and all that? Um, I'm in the process of, yeah, yeah. The basics, you got to be able to cut a steer or, or a seat post, right? So yeah. get a seat low enough. So that stuff, yes, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to deal with leading hydraulics or somebody comes in with an integrated TT bike. It's like, look, man, we got to do this in phases. It's the only way to do it. So I don't like that. I don't like those phases. <laughs> well, I cool. I, so I had, I had a guy contact me. He has a, he, he's a, uh, works with the shop angry catfish he's got a titanium moots that he bought from them uh-huh. went out and got a canyon with integrated cockpit contacted me and said it's not right yep and i said okay well you should work with your bike shop to duplicate the fits you've got on the current bike right oh the stem is strange well they know the stem is strange uh, okay well but i need but they're booked out to june i'm booked out to august yeah you no know, but it's really the the whole integrated thing is it's not my friend you know yeah. i mean i at first, when people would come, when people contact me with integrated bikes, I would turn them away. I would say, listen, you know, I mean, I can't, I, I don't think I can get a positive outcome. Now, if you came to me with your measurements, knowing how you ride a bike for as long as you have, I would do it. But right. when I get people that have, that are, um, that I fit on a Damani with like one centimeter drop, and then they've gone out and bought a Canyon integrated, you know, or Venge just happened actually. Damani yeah. with a two centimeter drop, yeah. I went out and bought a Venge. I mean, not a Venge, a S-Works Tarmac SL7 mm-hmm. and wanted me to give him the specs for that bike. And I said, I can't, you're, the best case scenario, you're still seven centimeters lower than your current setup, you know? Seven centimeters is... Seven centimeters. <laughs> yeah. So that's... Yeah. That's the deal with integrated bikes. I think, I actually think Specialized blew it with the Tarmac. The Tarmac was like the perfect bike for the guy who wanted to have a really fast bike. Mm-hmm. Or could take a 15 degree rise stem, you know, like didn't have good flexibility and just wanted to be able to go fast and have fun. And 
No, you can't do that. No, can't do that. But that's, I mean, it's the price of that adjustability obviously comes for that clean front line, you know, that photograph of the bike with no cables. We could do it. You could come up with a better solution. I mean, I thought, I think you should, the cockpit should actually have, uh, that the hydraulic hosing could actually be integrated into the headset. So mm -hmm. you clip in the handlebars, tighten it up, and mm -hmm. they're actually actuators that grasp the uh, mechanical device that pulls, you know, or something, something to make it easier because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. If, if these companies are so hardcore about fit, you know, we know Specialized was, mm -hmm. kind of still is, um, and Trek was, you'd think they make bikes that could be fit. Right. Like a speed concept. Mm -hmm. Like, how can you not, how can you not hate that bike? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, who's, it, it, first of all, it's almost impossible to CAD. Mm -hmm. And then when you do get it catted and the person comes in, their their stem thing is wrong. You know, the the this is the the XY is actually this angle and this rise. So it just doesn't work out. Right. And then I have then you have to recable it or cut the cables and tell the person they need to bring it back to the shop. It's another hundred fifty dollars. And yeah. 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 At just, least for an internal cable job with you know wiring with DI2 and hydraulic. And especially now, like, it's crazy how complicated the bikes are because you have to take out, a lot of times you have to take the crank set off and take the BB out to route the cable through the BB, you know. Oh, yeah. it's, yep. So it's and a you're getting, and you're getting hydro, hydraulic hose in your eyes. You're getting hydraulic fluid in your eyes and mouth. Yep, yep. And buying new DI2 wires because, of course, they come in whatever it is, 10 millimeter increments or whatever to have the perfect length wire. And inevitably, the new stem is it's going to be too short. So it's... It's a mess. It's really weird how bikes are gravitating towards one or the other. I mean, we even have gravel bikes now that are integrated with integrated cables. And it's just like, man, but so bikes are either these integrated things that require, you know, four or five hours and a few hundred dollars worth of maintenance to do any single change or even regular maintenance, or it's a bespoke, you know, mosaic moots, you know, seven, whatever. There's a whole pile of bikes in that category that are like really old school. Yep. and have exposed cables in most cases, or they've got a really simple internal cable routing that doesn't involve the headset and the stem. Yep. And okay. So either way, you're looking at 8k plus for a bike in many cases, yeah. but at least one, you can, if you need to change a brake cable, you could, well, not a brake cable. People don't use brake cables anymore. <laughs> if you need to change yeah. your derailleur cable, you could do it. Yeah. But, the, and then the other component is that it's never really right. Like, I mean, for me, in my experience, I've never, maybe a couple of times I have actually fit somebody with, with integrated cockpit, integrated handlebar stem setup where I really felt like it was right. Like and yep. the hoods were right in the right place with the right reach yep. and the bars had the right reach to the hoods and the whole thing. It just never, I don't know why it just doesn't, just there's doesn't. something about being able to rotate that two degrees in the bar or, you know, get that one, one millimeter higher, uh, cockpit or whatever. And then, the, then we, you take into consideration fact, like I think of us, like, you know, the thing I want to talk about is technology, but mm -hmm. truthfully, like, I think it's just, we're organisms. We are not metal. We're not, we're, our, our molecules are different, mm -hmm. vibrating differently than matter, than matter, like a, than, than solid matter, movable matter. And so like, when I see somebody with an integrated cockpit book, I'm like, where are you going to go? What right. are you going to do? That's what you get. You get what you get. Now for me, I encourage people. I'm I tell people all the time, I'm like, you know what? especially young people. I tell them like Peter Moore, remember Peter? Mm -hmm. I told Peter, I'm like, dude, stop coming to me for your saddle height. Get a wrench, go ride your bike and yeah. play with it. 
You got to learn to play all these new riders. And and actually, you know, I don't know where we got the idea that the saddle height is a millimeter in either direction. I don't think it's two centimeters. I know there's research supporting the idea that two centimeters doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true. Mm-hmm. But when I have a guy out here who's riding the flats all the time and he goes out to Colorado and tells me that his hamstrings are hurting. Right. I'm like, well, you lower your, lower your saddle. See how that feels. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, no, no. My saddle's perfect. Mm-hmm says what how do you what do you mean it's perfect perfect for what you know what yeah. i mean yeah you're you're right um there's a weird kind of cult belief around saddle height that there's some critical performance metric like if your saddle's three millimeters too low you're gonna be missing you know 10 percent off the top of your ftp or half a point of vo2 or something critical crucial and this is not true like right we're very adaptable organisms yes of course, we can see some trends in data and we can see some aspects of saddle height they are going to improve performance or decrease performance. But And then the other aspect of it is you said like all these studies look at saddle height very from a 50,000 foot view. It's like, let's put the saddle lower and measure power over different durations. Let's put the saddle higher and measure power over different durations. And of course, the challenge there is that there's no accommodation for adaptation to the position in one position or in you know one change or the other. But also, these studies aren't looking at things like pelvic stability. And pelvic stability is something that is going to play a massive role in the sustainability of your power over a three, four hour ride or over three weeks of training or several months of training. You know, it's like, hey, my back hurts all the time. My IT band is chronically torched on one or both sides because my saddle's too high, even though I, you know, got 12 more watts on a five minute test. Mm-hmm. So, five minute test. Right. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. So there's so many variables that go into whether a saddle height is, you know, air quotes, correct. And I agree with you. I think that uh, I was just thinking about this this morning, actually, when I was kind of preparing in my head for our discussion, our podcast, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, I've been getting a lot of test bikes from a friend of mine. He he runs a, a Trek test program. So I get a lot of mountain bikes from him, different frames. And he's always asking me to test things. And now I'm to the point where I've been riding my bike for 35 years. So I don't I don't always measure saddle height when I get a new bike. I just, I know roughly where it's at. I know where the setback is and I'll just do exactly what you said. I'll just ride out the door. And this may sound absurd to someone who's listening to this because I'm a bike fitter and I'm kind of known as being like Mr. Millimeter, you know, and my logo has got millimeters on it, but this is just where I'm at. I can ride out the door and be like, no, it needs to come up a little bit. It needs to come down a little bit. It needs to come back a little bit. And then I'm, I'm a few times I've like trialed myself, like go home, like, okay, let's see where I landed. I measure it. And sure enough, it's like, it's within two or three mils of any given parameter. Yeah. Because you know, because you've learned, you've learned by through experimentation, yeah. you've raised it high. This is too high. This is too low. This is too high. And maybe it's not the same every day, but it's true for me. I'm in the kind of in the same boat. I'm like, you know, they gave me a bike now gave me a Cervelo S3 for a year, a couple of years ago. I'm like, they're like, how do you want to set up? I'm like, just, Hundred, you know, stock stem, one centimeter spacer, saddle centered on the rails, seventy-two-five saddle height. Yeah, and they're like, really, but but it's, and I'm like, yeah, I don't care. I'm going to ride the bike as close to, you know, that's the stock stem, that's that. I know it's going to be within a centimeter or two, and I'll get used to it. Right. And I want the saddle centered on the rails because I want the bike to handle the way that it would be with the center of gravity over the bot- relative to the bottom bracket, how it was designed and stuff like that. Right. So right. I do. It's odd too because I am also the I'm a I'm total tweaker. But you know when people. I let somebody test ride like a demo bike. They're like, your handlebars aren't straight. I'm like, oh, yep, that's my bike. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been meaning to fix that the last three rides, you know. <laughs> and I am super, and I'm super anal retentive in life too. But 
that's the reason that's part of the reason why I believe I have to be more relaxed about this because mm. we are not we're not fixed like robots we don't act like robots we are we're humans we're really weird and our body you know here we get super cold super hot um I have these you know like I look you know I taught yoga for a long time mm-hmm. and I practiced a lot and what I noticed without without exception there are never two moments in time that were identical. There were never two postures that felt the same. My range of motion was never the same. I could do the exact same thing every day, eating the same food every day, and 100% of the time, doing a forward fold would feel different. Yeah, There would be different points of tension in my body, and I don't know what that's from, but I do know it's because I'm not static. I'm, I'm an organism, I'm alive and I'm breathing, and so there's a variability in my life, you know, when people go out and they ride their bikes, I'm like, wow, my fit's been great for six months. And I went out today and I'm starting to get some pain on the inside of my knee. I'm like, okay, well, see what happens with that. But just because you had pain on the inside of your day, one day after six months of, of goodness is, mm-hmm. you know, so I, it's funny that I'm, I'm the same way, but I'm really, I am about, I, I don't know that I'm about, I'm, I'm so much about the millimeters. I'm about trying to get the body to chill. Like there's a moment, like one of the things that Jerry told me, you know, we talk about you sometimes, never, not too much, but we do a little bit. So one of the things he said is, you know, when Kobe's setting up a position, a TT position, he'll move the person until he starts to see the back respond, the lumbar spine respond. Yeah. And then, and, and, and avoid that. And that's, I believe one of the most overlooked parts of a bike fit is what's happening at the lumbar spine. How is my position impacting that part of my body, which is probably the least happy about being in a horizontal position. Like we're not really designed to be riding bikes. Right. right? So that it's, but there's a, there's that. And when that happens and the person like with the saddle height, I'm not, I don't use, you know, I don't use measurements or anything like that. I'm, I'm looking to see if the person is actually pedaling the bike or the bike is pedaling them. You know, like you've talked about pelvic stability is the pelvis. Is it coming? Like, you know, when you look at a baby, like a kid push, they push put hip, knee middle of the foot right i mean hip knee middle of the foot i'm kind of looking for this kind of thing and and interestingly most of the people that come in their saddles are too high yeah for that to happen and i can show it to them i can say now look everything's cool but at this point your knee isn't is standing anymore and you're just making up for it with your foot or yeah um or you're actually getting pulled to that side or whatever So the back thing, you know, that was really intriguing to me when he told me about that, because I think it's true. And I think part of the reason why a lot of triathletes end up in such a forward position is because they run so much that all their extensors are bang and they can't actually get. That's why the the short cranks, the forward position, because there's no lumbar. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think fundamentally, it seems like they're trying to turn cycling into running, right? It's exactly what they're trying to do. And I think there's some, there is some validity in the sense that if I'm not hurting that low back, mm-hmm. then they will run better off the bike. But they're all pushing through the, I think that runners, you know, when people talk to me, where should you pedal? I'm like, you know, pedal through your foot. Yeah. What part of my foot? Your foot. The midfoot. What do you mean? Well, I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, one of those, those myths that the, the pedal should be between the first and fifth med or whatever. I mean, it's constantly changing. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, yeah, you know, we disproportionately tend to the forefoot because we cross it. Our center of our center of mass, our center of, of gravity, our center of mass crosses the foot every time we take a step. But on a bike, it never does. Mm-hmm. You know, we're behind it. So when we stand, we can get 
we get more. When we sprint, we can really, you know, like basketball player type snap out of that foot. But for the most part, we're behind that. And we never have the same amount of ground force reaction as we do pedal force reaction. Right. So why not use your whole foot? It's looking for love. You know what I mean? It's looking for it. So I, I do these things where I, I'll have somebody stand on the bike and I'll ask them to bounce on the pedal with one leg straight. And I'll say, now bounce with your toe pointing. Now bounce with your heel down. Now bounce through the middle of your foot. Which feels the best? Oh, the middle of my foot. Mm -hmm. Why not? You know, and then you see when they pedal through the middle of the foot, ironically, it appears it, it tends to, it, their, their body relaxes. And I, I, so I'll have them on the train and I'll say, okay, now push through the middle of the foot and you see the pelvis stable. Mm -hmm. And then I'll say, okay, now pedal, pay attention to what you're, to your, where the shoe meets the pedal and push through that part of your foot. And everything starts to get crazy, mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, it may be just a trend, but it's consistently that I see that if I get a person to just stomp, I don't, I mean, that's kind of a horrible thing to say in cycling, you know, like stomp on the pedal. But if you're just, when they're just pushing getting dumb about the pedal stroke, mm. it seems to make, it seems to address a lot of that squirmy stuff that's going on in the, in the lower limbs. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I've gone back and forth with Steve Hogg on this a few times and with Jerry a little bit too, about the philosophy of how much you can coach someone to pedal. And Steve isn't really a fan of trying to coach people how to pedal. He's sort of of the opinion that it's going to, it's so automatic. It's so ingrained that it's going to happen. I, I kind of want to resist that. And I do offer some people some tips and cues on how to pedal. And I did two, two hour podcasts on how to pedal a bike. So <laughs> clearly I resist that, but um, I do recognize that there's a definite, a power, definitely a powerful neural drive. I think that, you know, what we have gate, the gate cycle is hardwired into our nervous system as vertebrates. That's why when you cut a chicken's head off, it still runs across the yard because it still has that gate sequence hardwired in. So so when we get it, I think there's an essence, an essential truth there. If we're trying to be too mechanical or too um, cerebral about our pedal stroke, we're overriding a pattern that is so hardwired and so basic that it's just going to, things are going to get totally sideways. And the simple example of that is when people are told, you know, especially novice cyclists are told, well, you now you have clip in pedals. And the reason you have those is you can pull up on the backside. And so they start yanking up at the pedal at nine o'clock. So now we've got four programs running. We've got pull up at nine on the back on the right. We've got pull up on the backside with the hamstrings or and or hip flexors on the left at nine o'clock. And then we also have the hardwired vertebrate program of push on the left and push on the right at three o'clock. And those four programs are, that's just too much. I mean, the human brain can do amazing things, but when you, my experience is when you give it those four programs, two that are higher priority, probably neurologically and in terms of survival, uh, whatever Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, gate is really important. And if you can't run we can, walk, we can gate walk, we can use it on the bike. We do. I, that's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. I think that program plays directly into the push phase on the bike. But when you try to artificially add this pull up, man, you end up with a twisted pelvis. You end up with one psoas that's way tighter than the other. You know, one hamstring that's lit up, you get all this rotation. Anyway, that's generally. I totally, I totally agree. I told, and you know what's crazy about that, that you said that is that, so when I do this, what I'll do is I'll put somebody under a hard load and I'll say, now I want you to pedal really slow with your eyes closed. And what you do is pedal from your glutes and I'll hit their ass with the pedal wrench sometimes if they're permitting. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll have my hand on the top of their, uh, in the middle of their foot, just before the, the origin of the heads. 
and have them pushing through that really slow. And then I'll step back and I'll say now, and I increase the, I increase the tension on the, on the, the resistance of the roller until it's almost unbearable. And I send out pedal your way. Mm-hmm. And immediately they can't do it anymore. And my instruction, and this is the key, is that don't ever do this again. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't teach yourself. You can't, if, and, and this is born from me doing this for a year, for the last three years, primarily I've been doing this, trying to help people with that kind of thing. But what happens is people go out and try to do it and it runs away like a scared rabbit because it isn't, it isn't. So what I explain is I'm not, I'm not trying to teach you how to pedal. I'm giving your body a larger menu to select from. If you truly chill when you ride your bike and just do it however you're going to do it, your body will naturally realize when you are feeling distal quadricep strain, which is what happens a lot with the toe pointing stuff, that your body, your body will probably say, Hey, I've got an, I've got a new way of coping with this. But if you feel that and you say, I'm consciously going to use my ass and push through the middle of my foot, you'll probably tear your hamstring. Mm. So, but I totally agree. I don't think we can adopt these things. I think we can disadopt things. I think pulling up is a good thing to disadopt. I think we can. Yeah. Stop doing that. And I explained to people that part of the reason why I'm not into pulling up is because it creates cross patterns. We're not, both legs are not the same, like power meters that show equal power between either legs. Can you, can, can many people squat, single leg squat, the same amount of weight? We do everything asymmetrically in our lives. Why would you expect to pedal a bike with perfect symmetry? This is a basic misunderstanding of human. Like you said, we're an organism. We're all rotated slightly around the spine. We've got different lobes of lung. We've got a liver on one side. Absolutely. We use one hand dominantly. We use one eye dominantly. We use one leg dominantly. Like the expect when we get on a bike, just because a bike is symmetrical or well, it's really not, but in theory, it's symmetrical. The expectation that we're going to suddenly get 50, 50 on our power meter is though. And then that's the way to make a pedal like a robot. It doesn't and, it, make- and it couldn't be anyway. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're always helping the weak leg people subconsciously. I mean, I've, I've there are, and, and ironically, so when I, I thought, I'm going to give a little disclosure here. I thought that we should pull for a long time. I thought we should have a perfect pedal stroke. I got power cranks, started doing the power crank thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so strong, you know? But I wasn't strong. I could just ride the power cranks longer. So mm-hmm. I came up, worked with this company, and we, we had a CSV file of the, um, of the data. And it's a mess. I mean, like, you're watts are happening in weird places and you know and not at all alike between the legs but i then uh, the research i started reading read the research on pushing you know what we're different professional amateur athletes as amateurs like to pull more professionals typically don't mm-hmm. and i said well i have to disprove this so i have this lab here which is now my wife's she shack you can see the cameras on the wall but it's now she shack see the pictures uh-huh. so um i hooked up emgs to the glutes and the vastus medialis, and and I can't. You put them so as you can put them the rectus, but most people pull more from their hamstrings and so as than they do. They try to bend the bend the knee with the ham, you know. Yep. So, yep. but I did test the conditions, and what I found is that when people were pulling with the right leg, the contralateral glute was less effective, or the mean RMS was lower, and that when and the ipsilateral, so pulling on the right leg, the the contraction of that same side glute happened later in the pedal stroke. So then I said, well, that's just crazy. What's going on? How, how could this be? You know, I mean, we should be able to do both of these things, right? And then I thought about it in the context of um, BMX racers. You know, the best mountain bikers I know are people that raced BMX when they were young. And that, and that doesn't mean that these new, this new group of high school mountain bikers won't be better than they were. 
but I've always been impressed at how well BMX riders pedal. Mm-hmm. And that they, for a long time, just used platforms and they could really spin and stand and they could feel the ground and they could move around and stuff. And I'm like, wow, if they can run these really high cadences and be so effective and turn into these great cyclists, why, why, and they're never pulling, they can't pull. Mm-hmm. So that was another thought that I had. And then I, I actually thought about how, I thought about you guys and I'm like, well, what would Steve say about this? Cause I know Steve doesn't, isn't into the point two thing, thing too. And I, uh, and what it comes down to is I think about life and walking. Like you say, I think that gait, you know, when people say, how should I ride my bike? I said, well, you should really, it, it's closer. If you think more about walking when you ride your bike, it's going to be more natural because that's what we're really designed to do. But mm-hmm. you can't cite, like as human beings, when, when we're walking, our foot is going, we have to look where our foot's going. Or we do many times to make sure that we have a good place to put it. Mm-hmm. But you can't see that if you're pulling. If I walk across the floor with my knee up, I lose sight of my foot because my knee's between my face and my foot. That may sound far out, but I wonder if that's part of what happens. Not only is it hard to walk across the floor lifting your knees up, you know, and I ask people to do that. I'm like, okay, well, you want to pull up. I want you to go see what it's like to walk across the floor like that. Interesting. Um, Yeah. And then I ask them to feel what their hands feel like when they do it. You know, you want to be floaty like a pro. Well, -hmm. when you're pulling up, you're only pulling your spine towards the bike and increasing the pressure in your hands. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Well, if you think about gait and how removed we are from, you know, what is arguably natural gait, natural gait is walking in nature. Yeah. <clears throat> and when you walk in nature, you've got to look out for rocks and cliffs and mud puddles and rattlesnakes and holes and all the things that you don't want to put your foot in. If you're, if you're walking or running on a trail, you don't want to fall off the side of the trail and tumble down a mountain. Right. If you're running after your, your prey, you're hunting, you can't, fall off a cliff in the middle, you won't eat exactly. running from a predator, <laughs> you know, you're being chased by a lion or a badger or whatever. And you fall, you know, you run into a tree cause you're not watching where you're going or you break your ankle, you're going to get eaten. So now of course we disassociate all that in modern life because we're walking around on concrete on sidewalk and we've got our hokas, yeah. you know, our freaking pillows strapped to our feet, uh, you know, and so, so then we're just dis- completely disassociated from the activity of walking, which is, a detachment of our natural engagement of the environment because we can't feel the ground and we're not looking at the ground because it's a perfectly paved, you know, concrete sidewalk that's level and has to be six feet wide and blah, 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 blah. And no bushes or anything can obstruct it. And if you don't shovel your sidewalk in within six hours of a snowstorm, you get a ticket. Right. So it's just the continuation of that disconnection from nature. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. And, and to be fair, I think cycling is part of that process it, in some ways it allows us to connect with nature because you can go ride your bike in the mountains for four hours and see eagles and, you know, climb mountains and do all the things and, and develop that long distance vision. That's so important for human survival, right? We spend so much time on zoom and looking at computers and our eyes are fixed to these things that are 18 inches away from our nose. But part of human biology is to look at faraway objects to see, scan the horizon for herds of elk scan the horizon for threats. So anyway, little tangent there, but no, it makes perfect sense. It's I've been having a lot of discussions recently about connection with nature. And I've had that theme on my pod with many guests and thinking about that and, and how as humans, as a culture, we've, we've tend to, we want to silence the discussion with our bodies. We want to turn down the noise on our pain, right? And people come to us for a bike fit. It's like, oh, my, my, my butt hurts. You know, the saddle's really uncomfortable. 
And hopefully they see, and we educate them to see that that's about the relationship of their weight balance on the bike and, you know, handlebar height and cockpit reach and dimensions, and also how they're carrying their weight and how they're dumping into the saddle and rounding the lumbar spine and not having, not sitting with proper posture and some other things. And we educate them about that, but fundamentally it's like, what can I do about it? What creams can I apply? What ibuprofen can I take? What aspirin can I take? What can I do to quiet this, the signal? And for me, when my body talks to me, I try to listen to it. You know, if my hamstring hurts like crazy on a bike, it's like, well, what am I, what's going on here? You know, is it my position or am I a pro, am I applying an inappropriate technique or am I just riding my bike way too much because I've got this idea in my head that if I don't train, you know, five hours every Saturday and Sunday and be captain weekend warrior time optimization, more is always better that I'm not going to be good enough to win my local criterium or my local time trial or whatever. Jackpot. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, I used to do 24 hour solo mountain bike races. That was kind of my gig. Mm-hmm. And the truth is in that 24 hours, I wasn't with me. Mm. I mean, the truth is, is that, is that, so I got Lyme disease my body, I can ride a bike for like an hour at this point. Um, but when I stopped being able to ride a lot, I realized that, that my experience as an athlete wasn't, it wasn't that I had such a, I did love cycling, but I loved it as an escape. I loved it because I was constantly on endorphins. I rode, you know, I messengered and raced and I, you know, did, I would proud, proudly, you know, tell people I rode 20,000 miles a year. Well, of course, there's not a moment of, I never sat still. I never stopped with my feelings and all the other shit that happened Mm -hmm. all the shit that is life, which is hard. It's really hard, you know? Mm -hmm. And I almost think that part of what happens when we train overtrain or train too much is that something shifts in our consciousness and we are kind of disconnected from nature and our own nature. And we don't think clearly. And I think that's part of what precipitates it. You know, I have people that come in. I had a guy come in this year who was so twisted on his bike, triathlete has three Ironmans. Um, scheduled this summer, so mm-hmm. twisted on his bike, it was remarkable. I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around it because I'd fit him three years ago. He was perfectly squared and nice and smooth. I mean, we're talking bam, and also not amenable to changes. So I couldn't. I if I had put six millimeters under the hip drop leg, it wouldn't have changed. The knee would bend more. Yeah, yeah. And so what? Like I hate to like get too fluffy with this stuff, but it was like his body was screaming stop, mm-hmm. like we're done. Don't, I don't want three Ironmans this year. You need to take a year off. You need to let me, let me heal. You need to be kind to me and stop driving me down the wall because drive me, drive me into a wall because it's like the body's just saying, no, it's out done. And I see that. And I think that, that, but then there's this, oh my God, I got to be able to do it, but I have to be able to do it. My friends, my identity, my um, Facebook page, my um, family, you know, my me, you know, like when I couldn't ride anymore, people used to say, don't ride with balls or rip your legs off. I mean, I was like, yeah, I will inside. But outside, I'm like, no, no, I'll be nice. I was the guy who was like, oh, no, I rode 80 miles yesterday and then go out and just slay people yeah. because I was a nasty asshole. <laughs> but the fact is, when I stopped, my friends went away. My reputation went away. Everything disappeared. Yep. And I was just alone. And I'm like, fuck. And I wanted it so badly, bad. I wanted to be able to do it again. That I, you know, I saw this chiropractor and this doctor, and I'm like taking this supplement, this other thing, and nothing brought it back. It's the best thing that ever happened to me in hindsight because I now I now interact with people, my clients, like the humans. I mean, I get the human condition much more than the guy who could. I mean, I never got tired. I never 
didn't even really need to eat much. I was much younger at the time too, but like I didn't understand um, a lot. But now having with what I have now, I'm very conscious of time on the bike. Mm. Like, and I think to myself, when somebody says I need to be comfortable for a double century, I say you should not be, you shouldn't have an expectation of being comfortable for a double century. How do I train for the dirty cons? I say, well, stand at your desk, look at your computer and march in place for seven hours. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, just it's, it, it's, and I get it. And I don't want to just, I think that it's wonderful that people do it. And I, and I know that we all have different levels of experience. Some people, I think when I was young, I could ride that far, didn't feel a thing. But if you have symptoms, you know, if you have a knee problem or you have, uh, you're much older and you just don't have that to have that expectation. I think it brings, it puts on us unreasonable expectations with regards to things like what you were saying with the saddle stuff. I mean, if you're on, if you're sitting down on your saddle and you're not standing regularly and you ride a hundred miles and you've been riding your bike for three years, your ass is going to hurt. Yeah. There's yeah. no saddle. that's going to make it feel less because you're still sitting on your ass for. Right. And I wonder if it's, I wonder if we lose the sense sensory of our ass or whether uh, we get used to riding bikes, you know, and then we find our perfect saddle, but yeah, I just don't know what it is. Yeah. You know, mm. but it's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, it's so, yeah. I mean, that takes me back to the same place. It's that disconnection from nature and the, the determination that people have to prove themselves as athletes or decide they're going to take on this project to do these Ironmans, as many Ironmans as possible, you know, and they see, and I think this mindset can be very problematic. I mean, it's the Jocko Willink or uh, David Goggins mindset, you know, if you're familiar with that guy, he's, that guy's insane. Like he's the dude who, and, and I think his message can be really overpowering or, or it can also be inspiring for some people. Yeah, yeah. Um, depending on what your situation is, you know, there are people who need that militant, like get off the couch, get your ass out the door and go for a run. Stop making excuses. Stop waiting for the perfect day. You know, you need this. But the problem is that their model takes it to this ridiculous extreme. And, and the point is to inspire people and, and show them what humans are capable of. And that is inspiring, but mo but these are the freaks of the freaks. These are the people who can, smash themselves into oblivion for years on end and seemingly to this point have no consequence. You've had your own journey in that respect. And I think that's really interesting. Sure. Um, you know, I, I knew lots of riders who were similar to, to how you describe yourself in your younger riding days. Um, the guys who didn't eat much seemingly didn't need to drink much, just went out and smashed Watts all day and rode 20,000 miles a year. And, and, and I think it's also really powerful to hear you say like that was the best thing that ever happened to you is that you hit this health crisis and you had to, to change gears. I think that's really, you know, the, the, the old saying is the wounded healer is the best healer, right? You go through your own process, you go through your own challenges, and then you can teach other people. You've got a new level of authority and authenticity in your teaching. It's really hard for me to imagine or help someone who's got certain things that I've never experienced, you know, Lyme disease being one of my wife also has Lyme disease, but I've never experienced it. So I'm not going to be able to really bring a lot to the table in terms of teaching people that, but I've had plenty of other lessons myself. So we've all got our, and I think, and I think, the, and I think that having, I think the, the compassion, I think probably is, is huge. Yeah. You know, Jerry, Jerry and I talk all the time about how, 
we don't know that we're any good at bike fitting, but we know that we can connect to people and they gen- they know that we're genuinely trying to help. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, my clients know that I'm really busting ass to try to help them. Yeah. And I think that that makes a big difference. Yeah. That caring, you know, like, yeah, I want you to be able to ride comfortably. I want you to be able to ride without knee pain, mm-hmm. you know? So there's definitely that side of it. And I think that I wouldn't have had it. I was much more, much too aloof for yeah. that. Yeah. When I was young. Interesting. So, so well, you know, you reach out with me to me for, uh, to have a conversation. I really appreciate that. And I'd like to, to steer us towards that direction. You suggested we talk about technology and bike fitting and, and from my conversations with Jerry about you, I know that you have looked under just about every technological rock, uh, as far as exploring the relationship of technology in bike fitting and how it can help clients and how it can't, or maybe it fails, or maybe it leads us down the wrong path. So do you want to unpack some of that for us? Yeah. Yeah. So I reached out to you because it was actually after a conversation with Jerry, who was, is, there's a tech company that listened to your podcast with him and said, you know, we have some technology that can show you stuff that you don't see with your eyes. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to give you a free subscription for this period of time. And, and he was telling me about this and he's, he's interested and he might do it. And I was, and, or he was going to, was possibly going to do it. And I'm thinking to myself, what happened? Mm-hmm. What's going on, man? What's going on? And, um, and what it came down to is, is I think that at the, at the core of our desire for technology is consumer trust and positive outcomes, right? So a lot of what makes me have good outcomes here in Minnesota is that I have a strong following. People know me and they say nice things about me. So when somebody comes in, they're more inclined to go with my recommendations and trust me to do what I'm doing. There was a time when that wasn't the case. You know, I had all the technology and they're like, well, why aren't we using this? And I'm like, well, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And they kind of look at me like, you're just lazy. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I've I actually had people review me and say, well, I could, all he did was look at me, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think that, I think that, you know, what I, what I was hearing from Jerry is I, I know that he's, that he's had, he's had some back and forth recently with a, a pro rider who's, um, Got, got some ongoing issues issues that arise despite changes to the position. And that's a different topic. But I think that, you know, what I hear in his voice is there, it would be great if people would, if I could quantify what I do in a way that people have more confidence in what I've done so that they stick with or work through the small discomforts and negative thoughts that can occur after bike fitting. Yeah. That's what I heard. I don't know if that's what you're saying, but it, it makes, it kind of gets me, I get a little fired up about it because, um, because I've done it. I mean, I was, I, I think that one of the, one of the hardest parts for bike fitters and it's going to sound kind of crazy. I don't think we ever know if we have, there's no such thing as a perfect position. First of all, there's a great, there's a great way we've got you. There's a moment where I say, that's it. And it's usually, I'm looking for like a relaxed body with a good pedal stroke within the context of what they're trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. But it's, but I, but I know because I do the follow-ups I've did, the, I did this for years. I, I saw people like two or three times um, when I started out I, and I, I sponsored people and I would watch these people and I get them perfectly fit three and a half hours. Like you're fucking, don't let anybody touch your bike. And they come back a month later and it would look horrible. Mm-hmm. And I think it looked horrible because their body relaxed because the position was decent. Mm-hmm. And so then I thought to myself, well, wow, I wonder what else could impact position. 
Yeah. Right. So somebody drives to see me for six hours. I fit them. Is are when they're at home two days later, are they, is that position still the right position? So I think there's that. And I think a lot of people don't know what somebody should look like on a bike. Like I, I honestly think that people, a lot of fitters don't know what somebody should look like. What should somebody look like? Well, they all look different. So what's the right position? So yeah. I think that, that, that in my experience, and I'll speak for myself, okay, I reached out to technology because I didn't trust myself and what I was doing. Because mm -hmm. every once in a while, somebody would come by and I'd fit them. They're like, it's horrible. I went and saw somebody else and they dropped my stem seven centimeters and I feel like a million bucks okay. you know, or, or whatever, whatever. And this is, you know, a long time ago, but, but I was always questioning myself, is this really, you know, blah, blah, you know, and then you hear, then the, the stuff starts coming in. Well, with our retool, we can, we're now, um, retools better than video. It was video for a while. Video was like, okay, we've got, well, the ganometer, the ganometer first. And I think that maybe bike, the, the original bike fit, the fit kit was mm -hmm. a decent technology mm -hmm. for people that didn't, you know, you're going to get, let's, let's get an approximation of how we need your bike to be. And then we can change it instead of just going in blind. But the, um, and then, and then retool, and there was video like 400, you know, key video. Mm -hmm. um, and we were started drawing lines yep. and looking at joint angles. And that's fucking cool. You know yep. I mean? It, it's, it's cool. And what it does is it justifies or excuses what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Research says 25 to 35. Great. It's a good range. It's a little bit high for me with a goinometer. And then, and so I could look at that and say, this is the right angle. And that person's less likely, it's easier for me to convince them that I'm good at my job. So the way it worked for me is I started with a goinometer, you know, in the plumb line mm -hmm. back in the days. And I said to my, and I started to notice that, well, what we know, which is saddle height has a huge impact on plumb line, right? You know, knee over pedal spindle has a, has a, you know, saddle height. And I had read this stuff about the myth of cops. Um, but my mind only knew what I had been trained in or what I had learned. And that was that we need to have, use a goinometer and we need to have the over pedal spindle. And from there, everything falls into place, mm -hmm. right? That everything falls into place. Like that's where the center of mass is the best. And what I noticed is that with people with different like feet had different plumb lines, mm -hmm. like the plumb was different. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait, that's not right. That's that, that person's riding like a 68 degree seat tube angle, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And so that was confounding me. And I'm like, well, then maybe this isn't right, you know, but I was still looking. Why? Because I want to be able to tell somebody this is right. This is what I told you mm -hmm. and what I, what I believe and what I tell you in this technology are saying the same thing. So from there, I started looking at just joint angles and I did the research on the joint angles and blah, 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 and started using the low grade video camera and a free, you know, I was using Quintech at the time, motion analysis. And I was, you know, looking at the joint angles and doing it in slow motion. Everybody loves slow motion. Yeah. And I was looking at their, uh, at their joint. I would show them their joint angles and say, this is where your knee should be. This is where your hip should be. This is where your trunk should be. This is where your arm should be. We're good to go. Mm -hmm. All the lights are green. But what I started noticing is that when I looked through my, my computer screen and I looked at them, it didn't look the same. Yep. Yep. And I'm like, what's going on here? So then I started playing with the resolutions on the computer and I'm like, well, I definitely have the wrong perspective. So I changing all the different 
things. And I'm like, nope, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. Um, and I don't believe it's possible mm-hmm. today with any, with any, with any computer, any, I mean, any uh, video camera, even professional movie cameras to actually capture the human condition hmm. perspective. Because if we could, that <laughs> famous people wouldn't gain 10 pounds on film. Yeah, right. You know, right. they say you gain 10 pounds on film. Well, that's a, I can't afford that camera. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can't afford it. And you're still gaining 10 pounds. Yep. And there, and there's certain characters or attributes that, that when you, you see, you know, like for instance, why does somebody wearing a t-shirt look fat on the trainer with a video camera? They always do. Right. You know, I'm always like, tuck your shirt in before you get on there because you're not going to like what you see. <laughs> um, and I still use video today, but I use it more to show. I do use, I use, a, I use a, you know, this is the technology part. I do use a camera with high definition. I use a magical converter, but it's so that I can let them see what I'm seeing. I yep. somebody give them the yep. bike and I say, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I think we should, we should work on. That's exactly I don't, I, what I do. That's exactly what I do. I take, yeah. I just take video with an iPad and I say, let me show you what I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah, sorry yeah. to interrupt, but I just had to say that. And so, and I don't, and I don't actually go back and forth either. I mean, I don't, I don't typically go backwards. So when I, I'm like, this is what we're going to do. And we start moving in the direction of a better situation. We don't go back. So that was video. Mm-hmm. The 3d thing. Um, and that's what I do now. But back when I was doing the angles with the joint, with the thing, I'm like, this isn't working. We got to find something better. And then retool came out and I liked the idea of the sum mean angles so that we can look at the angles through a certain number of pedal strokes. And then we can use that. Um, that number, which is more predictive than that single number. Yeah. You know, if I, if I slow it down, I'm getting one joint angle versus the sum of all those angles averaged. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going down that road, right? Right, right. So um, I got it. I've used, I've used Retool for fitting twice. And I've had it. I still have it. I still use it for the Zen tool. Yeah. But I use it for, for, the, for the fitting twice. And the reason that I did is because because we are not, we are, it, it, it didn't have the symmetry. I was like, well, I can, joint angles are not that hard. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. muscle recruitment and what's driving those joint angles, that's hard. Yeah. Um, but symmetry, I would want to use it for symmetry and you couldn't put it on either side. So I reached out to a company called BTS Bioengineering in Italy and they were, that's the, what the Mappe Sports Center used for their fitting back in the day. So mm-hmm. I'm like, cool, cycling, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And they gave me a smoking deal on a 3D and EMG system if I was going to write for writing a program, a 3D program for bike fitting. Spent two years doing it. Um, 860 operators, 27 markers. I got the vertebrae. I got the blah, blah, blah. I got the da, da, da. And I mean, and I can actually show you uh, if you want to see it today, the, 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 one of the, one of the protocols, I got really good at writing different protocols. And what happened, the first thing that happened is that I realized I was uh, chasing my own tail. So what I, I everything everything I did raised the question of some other control. How am I going to control for this variable? So mm-hmm. my first program, I had the dots and everything's looking great. And then I'm like, wait a minute, the bike is the bike symmetric? Is the bike vertical? Right, the ground, Perfect. right. Perfect. I know that I used I know that I used my my I set my calibration up for a vertical axis. Everything relative vertical axis. So the bike isn't vertical then nothing I'm doing is true. So then I corrected for that and made the bike the vertical axis. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, well, am I really in the middle of the joint? So I actually started measuring the joints and putting in calibrations where I would measure the girth of the knee to try to act, try to get the central joint based on where I put the marker on the lateral condyle. Did mm-hmm. that with the hips. I just kept going down this thing like crazy. And I'm like, well, 
Now I'm just going to throw all the data in there so that we can see, see, you know, we want to know the range of motion because that will tell me how much tension there is. We want to know the min and max average, right? Because we want to see what, and then we want the outliers too. Mm-hmm. So we're going to have that number separate. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to look at the vic- vectors of joints as well as joints relative to other parts of the body. And we're going to do acceleration, angular, angular velocity to see if the cranks are too long. Mm-hmm. I mean, deep down the hole. And one day I was sitting there and I'm like, and I'm looking at the, per- I'm looking at my, so you can look at this, the, 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 I'm, I tried to make it look more like a person. You know, mm-hmm. you, got, you got what it is. It's basically just dots. And yeah. so I'm like drawing these lines, you know, between I'm like, no, that's not what a thoracic spine looks like. And I'm like weaving all this stuff in to try to make it look more like a body. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Why are you trying to make this 3D output look like a human being? Right. Because the true value is in what it's showing. So the numbers are great. And, uh, but it wasn't anything novel. Okay, things that I couldn't that 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 uh, were not symmetrical. If a hip is dropping right, and you can't see a hip dropping right, then you shouldn't be using 3D to see the hip dropping right. You should learn to see the hip dropping right. The I was looking at dots rather than muscles, rather than tension. Right. The cervical spine C6, C7 is completely impossible. I mean, I guess you could measure if you really want to get plaques, you could put a you could put a, a marker on C7 and maybe one in the occiput occiput mm-hmm. and measure cervical extension between those two points. Right. But it was showing me, it was showing me a very, it, it was a very complex way of looking at the most basic components of human movement mm-hmm. reduced to reflective markers. Yep. And I, and I thought to myself, well, this is, this is illogical. Like the human condition, we're not, human, we're not markers. And what are you going to do with it anyway? Mm-hmm. Am I going to, am I going to jam somebody into symmetry? Am I going to wedge that pelvis? You know, if you see that I did this, I did this. If you, can you share a screen? I'll show you the, I'll show uh, you one of those things. Well, uh, we won't be posting video anyway, so. Okay, cool. We'll just do audio. Cool. Yeah. I'm not set up to post the video. So that's just so you and I can. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, so anyway I saw the, like, you could actually see, I had the PSIS and all this other stuff. So I could see if there was rotation in the pelvis. But uh-huh. if you stand back and you look, you see the rotation of the pelvis. It's right there. It's like if you know what you're looking at, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. I told the company it wouldn't work, and they didn't like that, and right. they came up with their own, which was fine. And then the EMG, I started using the EMG, same company. I integrated the two, which was kind of cool, mm-hmm. um, because one thing that I couldn't see was where the muscles occurred in the pedal stroke. So I created a control for top dead center in the pedal stroke based on hip angle. So when the hip and the knee and the, and the ankle were at max flexion, that was the top of the pedal stroke. Although it wasn't really, it was before the top of the pedal stroke most of the time because the cranks were too long or the, they were uh-huh. too low. Um, right. But what I noticed is that um, with the EMG is that uh, I could see it and I'd be like, okay, your right hamstring isn't firing as much. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're going to, we're going to do this, you know, we're going to, or your right hamstring function, which will wedge that up, put some shim in there. Mm-hmm. And it never worked. Not once did trying to create musculoskeletal symmetry work using EMG. And it occurred to me that the reason it didn't is because there are no, no two muscles on our body are the same, have the same tension. We're not the same. Like if you were to weigh every muscle, if you could dissect me and take each muscle out, they would have different mass. Right. And they would have different amount of fascia and scar tissue interwoven with them. So it wouldn't make it, it just can't work. So 
they, I told them that didn't, wouldn't work either. They didn't like that. And they came up with their own. Um, one thing I forgot to mention with the 3D is that one of the things that happened at first was the markers. So the way I found that when I, I, with the markers, I'm super OCD. I started measuring the distance between joints to the markers so that I could get the, or yep. calibrate the distance between the joints and different parts of the body were different mm -hmm. for each hemisphere. Like you said, three lobes on one side, organs, you know, different organs on the other, more mass. And yep. so what I found is that typically the distance between any vertebrae and a joint on the right side of the body was greater than the left. Yep. And that blows the whole symmetry thing out of the water. Mm -hmm. So there was that. And then with the, um, with the EMG, uh, not symmetry. I did find good things with the biofeedback. Like I could leave somebody in a room and let them watch a muscle fire. They, you could, so just the raw data and mm -hmm. it would get better. And it seemed to hold. I didn't go down that path too much, but um, it seemed to hold. It, mm -hmm. like you could look at your glute and if you look at your glute for 10 minutes, knowing that you want to have more amplitude, better latency and a little bit more of a burst potential, um, people could do that. And it even worked with some a person who had cerebral palsy, which it wasn't supposed to, but that was interesting in an aside. Hmm. The, uh, and the other thing I got out of the, out of this study was that, um, we need float. We need float. So when I looked at the tibial, I, I had a marker on tibia, the tibia for tibial rotation yep. and, and the recruitment, I think it has <laughs> a lot to do with, um, what muscles are being used, whether the person's an upper leg muscle or a lower leg muscle, but in some conditions there was there was always tibial rotation, you know, just because the condyles are offset and the knee isn't a hinge, it glides and twists and blah, blah, blah. Yep. But I noticed I would see a wave. I did the pedal, I did the, the float in a wave, sinusoidal wave like this, mm -hmm. which was helpful because if they were hitting the float, it would flat on one side. So the top would be flat. The bottom would be smooth and round if uh -huh. they were on the outside of the float limited. Um, Huh. But it changed my perspective on float. I didn't realize how many people, like when I just looked at all the data, you know, like 300 trials, that that everybody has float. I don't, never, I don't see it when they're pedaling, right. but it but it's it must be there because. So that was the one thing that I really I got out of that um, out of the out of that whole thing. So 3D and the EMG is gone, and I've got it sitting. It's still sitting here. It's worth a lot of money. Um, <laughs> And then I, I said, well, I'll do the pressure thing, right? The pressure mapping. So I got that, that unit and started using it. Um, and Chris, can I just pause you for one sec? I want to make a couple comments on that whole process, if you don't mind. Um, I think it was really interesting what you were saying about your discovery that the camera lens warps the view and that it changes people and that even the most expensive cameras we have in the world in Hollywood add 10 pounds to people. I think that's really insightful. Um, I mean, I'm looking at myself on Zoom right now, and I can tell you I look a lot better in real life. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there's something to that for sure. Um, and, you know, I do use an iPad just to just as a as a tool for me to help illustrate what I see to the client. I think that that is helpful in the teaching process for me. And then I use that as a platform for why I might want to make a change to someone's position. So I say, this is what I see. This is what I'd like to improve. So let's try pushing your saddle back a little bit, but you've got to sit with the right posture and explain that to them, right? As an example. Another point I want to make is that back to your conversation with Jerry, and I, I definitely have sensed the same thing in my conversations with him as well. And I think this goes to 
<clears throat> kind of the relationship of the fitter and the client. And I, I think I've largely ignored this paradigm, which is the, I have to convince the rider that I'm good at my job. I, um, I don't really want to do that because for me, as soon as we go down that, that rabbit hole, that energy of like, Hey man, let me show you all the ways that I can do my job. To me, it sounds like a sales pitch and I'm a terrible salesperson one, and I'm not really interested in sales. Like the person's already walked through my door. They've already booked an appointment. They've already read all my pre-fit info. They already know my rates. They're already here. They already have given me that act of faith. So the, the, if I were to, and this is just my perspective on it, I'm not speaking for Jerry or any other fitters here. Um, but my perspective is if I were to then try to give them this pitch about how good I am at my job, to me, that just speaks to my own insecurity. That's, that's all I would feel is like, I really don't feel like I can do this well, but I better sell it well so that they don't go out and talk you know, poorly about me in the next group ride or go to another fitter and talk about how I sucked or whatever. Like, I'm just going to do the best job I can to serve this client and do everything I can to put them in the best possible position, educate them about why I did it, educate them about the technique I would like them to use on the bike, the posture I want them to sit with, why they have to use that posture in order to make this positional change work, et cetera. And then I'll let it be what it is. And if they come back in a month and like, man, everything sucks. Then I go, I'm really sorry. Please let me try to help you. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about your sensations and why it's not working. Um, or if we get to a certain point and they're still unsatisfied, then I give them their money back. And it's just like, I, I took my car to a mechanic and I had an oil leak and the car, the oil pan still freaking leaking after three rounds. Like I expect a refund, same thing in bike fitting. So I hold myself to that standard. So anyway, I just want to comment on that. Like, I, I feel like convincing someone that you're good at your job. It's kind of like, let me tell you how many races I've won, you know? You get on a group ride with a guy like that. And after a while, it's like, okay, pal, <laughs> it's enough. No, you no, see, no, yeah, it's enough. But also you see, they're just fluffing themselves up. So I just thought that was really interesting. Um, and then the last point I wanted to make was you were talking about the dots and how you, you kept going down the rabbit hole of, well, now I have to make sure this marker is in exactly the right place. So I'm measuring the distance from the AC joint to the, you know, whatever. And, and man, I mean, I, I have a little taste of that too. Even in cleat positioning, it's like every time a client comes back, it's like, did I put this marker here or here? And does it really matter? There's a part of it there. There are moments when those millimeters matter. I think that's why we Absolutely. do what we do. But <clears throat> that said, there's also an acceptance that it is an organic being that you're looking at. I mean, my interview with happy Friedman, he talks about how people get several millimeters shorter over the course of a day. And like you were saying, someone drives six hours to see you for a bike fit, or they travel all day on a plane and fly. I have people that fly to see me for fits and they travel. And sometimes they come in that day and it's like, Oh man, you've been on an airplane. You're probably dehydrated. Your shape, you know, your spine is curled up like Ichabod crane. You're sitting like a question mark, like, let's do a little movement. Let's give you some water. Let's try and get things flowing. But that model of trying so hard to model a human body and then you get to the point where you see the model and you're like, man, this is infinitely complex. Like that marker's off and I have to do this and I have to measure that. And then you realize the futility of that exercise. It's like, just look at the person. Person's right there. See hip drive. Right. Why am I trying? And I think that's such a human thing to do to try to model everything. Um, and I, I get to the same point with best bike split because they're trying to model the time trial course, the wind, the gradient, the tire pressure, the coefficient of rolling resistance, the you know, humidity, temperature, pressure, 
and they're trying to predict how fast a rider will go if we have them go at 108% of their threshold on this hill and 100% on the flats versus 101 on the flats and 106 on the hill or whatever. And, and to me, that's just like, I see the point. I see that in at the Olympic level or the world level, perhaps that could make a difference. Thank you, sweetie. Coffee delivery. Thanks, <clears throat> um, that could make a difference and for elite sport, but for the vast majority of all riders, this is a stone that does not need to be unturned. Um, in my mind, it's just like, you're trying to model nature and nature is so complex and beautifully stochastic, right? Just let it be, let it be, let it be. So anyway, I just want to make that comment. Um, or those, those, no, I totally, it, right. I totally agree. I mean, same thing when I look at a person like, and we have the, we have the person, we don't need to look at them through anything. We, yeah. They're right there. We can touch them. I can see the crease in their neck. I can see the look yes. on their face. I yep. can see that the white in their hands, mm -hmm. you know, it's the, and, and I think, but I still think that what happens with the technology is that it's, I think that there are other ways to demonstrate what technology demonstrates in a much more organic fashion. Yeah. For instance, saddle pressure mapping. I was, I thought this was going to be the Holy grail. I'll sell a ton of saddles. <laughs> People came in, they sat on the saddle. Your saddle sucks. I love my saddle. And what do you do? You know? Right. And I'm look, like, okay, well, Look at the numbers. I'm going to be more liberal with this because I don't want people to hate me because I'm telling their status sucks. Um, mm -hmm. And I know that there's there are that people that really use it a lot, love it, and that it tells you about saddle height and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, symmetry, I tried for a while to try to create the symmetry through modifications of the foot pedal interface and, and uh, using the saddle mapping. And, and it didn't, it wasn't a positive experience for me. It wasn't like mm -hmm. I felt like I was... <clears throat> I wasn't looking at the whole unit. I was looking at the, the mapping. Now, I believe every technology in the hands of certain people, I, I believe the technology that some, there's some great fitters that use technology and they, and it works for them. And so that's them and that's good for them. It doesn't work for me. Yeah. Um, I did that and then I've come up with other stuff, you know, trying to figure stuff out. But the fact is, is that what I've learned over the years is how to demonstrate to people what I'm seeing, either by showing a video or letting them feel it or giving them something else. So I don't, I don't, I don't believe in showing somebody as much what they should do is what they shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. I think it's easier to avoid something that is wrong than it is to do something that is right. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. if somebody's arching their back on the bike really hard and driving into their hands, I'll say, okay, now hop off the bike, get on your hands and knees. And now watch your back and I'll push them, push them on the middle of their back. And I say, how does that feel? Yeah. Not great. Well, what do you want to do? I want to kind of close it off. And mm -hmm. I said, well, you don't have to actively do that on the bike, but you should know that this is what, when you're arching your back on the bike, this is what's happening. Mm -hmm. Or if they're arching the back, I'll have them pedal backwards. And I'll say, now I want you to just relax and see if it's easier to pedal backwards. And it is, of course, because the ilium isn't as rotated, you know, yep. anteriorly. Yep. Now they're obviously fit changes you could do to accommodate that if you wanted to, but I think that that the uh, that we that being able to quantify and and still to this day I still use the retool for tracing bikes and I do like it for that. I I, the technology that I use, yeah, yeah, it works for measuring, and a lot of people say it doesn't, but if it's at the right angle, it does. Um, but I use the retool for measuring. I use uh, an adjustable stem. I make my own insoles that are my own. I, I made them myself and my insoles, you know, my technology, the technology insoles, it was one of those things again, where I was always, I was overcompensating. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to make, I'm going to do better arches or I'm going to, 
post or I'm going to camp and stuff like that. You guys have a protocol. One of the things that I learned from working with you guys is that, um, well, I'm much less liberal with what I do to a person's foot at this point. So because I don't have any way to, to measure that, I do have, I, I can, I do a little bit of stuff that might even, I don't, I, I, I'm not even going to go to the word. So the, without being able to truly measure the impact of something, how can I tell whether or not my wedge, which makes it feel like they're having more power, whether that's creating tibial torsion, right? whether I'm loading the medial condyle and they're just not feeling the muscle work as much because now I'm levering two joints against each other, or it's actually having a positive effect. Mm-hmm. So basically what I've come up with the insoles is they're just, they're not corrective. It's just your foot. It's and I just heat them up, squish the foot. I squish it around, get, get in all the nooks and crannies and people love them. They love them because there's no correction. It's simply proprioception, giving more, giving the foot a better surface area to press into. Yeah. 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 Okay. And, and I think that I, I truly think that there are, there are, that for people that are no more, that it could be that there's a, there's a utilization of those things. Mm. I do, you know, a little duct tape on the medial heel. That seems to help a lot sometimes. Um, yeah. But the, uh, which I got from Jerry, that's not an original me thing. Yeah. Like, just stick <laughs> a couple pieces of duct tape under there, man. <laughs> but, the, uh, but it works, you know? So I do that. That's what I use an ice bike cat. Mm-hmm. And the end, but what's interesting about those things is that I'm measuring and in the retool, I'm measuring the bicycle. It's for record keeping and it's, the bicycle is not organic. Right. It's, yeah, it's easy to measure because it's not changing on me. It's like trying to measure the waste of an amoeba you know, with, with people. So the, uh, so I use that, the insoles I do because I believe the cycling, uh, because it's just been positive. Like my, I've learned, I've learned over the years that like my thoughts and how people respond are not always aligned. So I've now make decisions on what I use or do and or use or don't use or do is based on how the, how clients respond to that. Mm-hmm. And so really simple insoles, the stem size or to change positions, mostly for comparison and to save time, you know, but I'll, I'll let somebody know. Um, and one of the ways that I help help increase confidence with fitting is when is with the stem size or I'll put it on and I'll say, okay, this is where you are. But, oh, it feels pretty good. Okay. I'm going to show you where you were. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. that's a pretty, sometimes that's a pretty radical departure from what's, what, what they like. I think our body defines homeostasis on a continuum of better. Mm. And that it frequently forgets what was worse until we go back and revisit it, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah. the ability to take that and do that helps, but that's it. And I've got a kid who's 21 years old, who's, I started, I've worked with for six months and he's, he, and I think he's probably better than most of the people that I know that are using technology at determining saddle height. Specifically, okay. he comes into a room, like how's the saddle? He's like, it's too high. Just walks by right away. Yeah. Knows right away. Yeah. And, it, and what's really interesting is that because he hasn't looked through the lens of technology at the human condition on a bike, it's almost like it's accelerated his ability, his mm. confidence or his ability to see the, see the bodies. It is, he doesn't, he hasn't accumulated years of like, well, am I right or wrong? And, and it's, it's crazy. Cause he comes up with things that I didn't like. One of the things that I do sometimes is I have a person stand with one foot forward, one foot back, and I tell them to engage each glute independently for five to seven seconds and then change feet, legs straight, try to do it because, um, and my theory, and I don't know if it's true, is that, well, we're gonna get to try to get the glutes 
to fire in the plane of the foot pedal interface, mm-hmm. right? So we're I'm working with this client and we're doing this stuff and I'm and and he's just he's still just hanging he's just hanging off one side of the bike and I'm like what would you do Luke? And he said I'd have him do that and we did it and it was fixed and now I've never thought of doing that to help this guy. Do that glute exercise. Yeah, yeah. Luke came up with it. The kid's six months. Isn't that great when you have that? It's it's like Avatar, you know, my cup is empty. It's like, you know, we we have been doing this for so long. You've been bike fitting a lot longer than I have, but it, you know, you you fill your head with ideas. And sometimes those ideas can be constructive and there are tools you can use to help the client. And other times they just get in the way. And it's just the simplest, like Jerry said to this to me once years ago, he's like, just look at the person and soft focus your eyes and just watch. What do you see? And there's something so basic about that. And and that's really interesting what you were saying about your your young kid, your your protege, because that's really cool that he has that ability to walk through the room and just go, oh, that was too high. Man, it, it's like that book Blink. Like there are, when you really start to refine that ability to instantly see someone or something, a situation, and what's your first hit? When you are open, when your cup is empty, when you are, um, to use kind of a really maybe out there term for this conversation, you know, in the world of shamanism, we talk about being the hollow bone, right? You're channeling knowledge that is beyond your own little skull here, your head case. It's, it's information that the universe can give you. And you look at something and you go, what is the truth about this? What is its essence? And the essence is, I see that person towing down at the bottom of the stroke because they're barely making it through the bottom of that pedal stroke. And that's to me and you, I think that's probably really obvious from, I can, I can see hip drop and helicopter shots during world tour camera, you know, world tour coverage. It's like, ow, oh, this is hurting my eyes from here. And I'm watching it on TV. So the television, the lens can show us some accuracy at times, but the point is like, look at the essence of a thing and see it. And, and don't worry so much about the, the perfection, the, am I right? Am I wrong? I think that's the wrong question, Yeah, yeah. right? This You're not right point. or wrong. You're just looking and trying to understand. So put yourself died aside, let your ego just go take a nap for a moment Yep. and just step forward into the moment and serve the client to the best of your ability. That's like, and this is bike fitting esoteric talk that some fitters are going to be like, what the hell are you talking about? But this is how I approach things. I think yeah. real strength in that ability to, to just look at the organism with a soft focus and say, what do I see? Where is the strain? Where is the block? Where is the movement not happening? Where is movement happening? Where is flow happening? Where is ease happening? That's oh, the right. end goal. And that goes directly to the point of, uh, I brought this up on a couple other pods, but there's a like a cat free meme uh, Instagram account, I think it's called. And they have all these super funny jokes about cycling. And one of them is, you know, bike fitter uses random number generator to produce saddle height. <laughs> and it's just so funny. Like I love, I'm going to print it out one of these days, hang it on my wall in the shop. Cause I think it's, a well, doesn't that work? Didn't, didn't Jerry come up with some kind of crazy calculation that for some reason works? it's just more accurate than not like some it crazy is. number. Like the, you get a hundred monkeys, you know, on a typewriter in a room and eventually one of them will type, you know, a novel or, or a Shakespearean yeah. play by accident. I don't know. I, I haven't heard Jerry talk about that. Or if I have, I forgot about it, but. I wouldn't be surprised. The interesting thing you said about like the, the more off bike fit topic stuff, I think it is turned into bike fit. So I started getting angry because I was working too much and felt, and just frustrated, frustrated with the canyons and with the integrated cockpits and stuff like that. 
Mm-hmm. And I started doing, uh, you know, I did yoga for a long time, whatever with that. But I started doing this Buddhist meditation where you just, you're sitting. It's a, it's a, it's not, it's a, it's a form of Vipassana, but you just sit and you, and you let your thoughts be. Mm-hmm. You have your thoughts. Mm-hmm. This is it now. This is happening now. That kind of thing with, but without letting those thoughts become more than just the thoughts that are moving through your head. Sort of observing I, the thoughts. Observe, observe, yeah, observing thoughts. And what was interesting about it is I've always tried, like all the other meditations or things that I tried, trying to get rid of thoughts, trying to just focus on one thing, my breath, you, you know, align with that, merge with that, become this essence of something. This isn't becoming anything more. It's just present moment awareness. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about it is it's kind of like the, sh- the shaman bone, that the same thing that we were saying about the shaman is that it is true that in the moment that I'm with the client, if I'm truly present with them, then I can, then things can happen, right? I mean, then I'm, it's just them. All of the stuff that's happening is them. And in the moment it is. And that non-attachment, you know, I I think that um, the humility required to do a good job fitting is not really any different than what happens in scientific exploration. We look at science, right? How do we, all we're ever doing is, is is experimentation, right? You're experimenting. You're testing something against a, a theory or a hypothesis to see whether or not it's true. Yeah. The problem with us is it doesn't generalize. Mm-hmm. So I have somebody come in, I look at them stand, they look like they got a valgus knee. I shim that person, everything's groovy. The next person comes in with a valgus knee, if I shim them the same way, I'm gonna get the same result. And I think that that's, that's what makes it so exciting for me. What I love the most about my job is that there are no two moments in time that are the same. There are new two bodies that respond identically to the same stimulus. And that if I'm, if I get out of my own way, you know, I tell people all the time, like, yeah, I don't know. That was hundred percent wrong. You know, I put a, I put, I, you know, I put a shim in the shoe. I'm like, whoa, that was horrible. Right. You know, but, but that, but being able to do that, it helps me. It helps me get out of my own way, but it also does something with the client. Like they realize that like, I'm a human being just trying to make things better, Yes. you know? Yes. And then to show them why, you know, some people say, well, that actually felt pretty good. And I'm like, yeah, it did. But here's why, and, you know, then hold on to their pelvis and say, now you feel like you're jamming to this right hip. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just feeling more of something, which is why you might be thinking it's better. Better. And that's a trap that's so easy to fall into in bike fitting. Like sometimes you can make almost any change. And then if you ask the client, how do you feel, man, it, like it's so easy for them to say, well, it feels better. But as you just said, sometimes they're just feeling more. And yeah. it's not that often we make a change that immediately causes discomfort. It can happen. Mm-hmm. Sometimes right away you get someone's like, oh, my knee feels a little funky. It's like, okay, what do we do to your knee tracking there or whatever? Or yeah. that's an indicator that their fascial you know, lines or, or pathways are really tight on that knee and we made a tiny change and already they're getting an alarm signal. It's like, all right, we got to have a conversation about mobility and doing something besides sitting at a desk and riding your bike. <laughs> this is a warning sign. But um, most of the time you make a change and you ask someone like, yeah, it feels good. And it's like, that's a, that's a pitfall that's really easy to fall into as a bike fitter, unfortunately. Um, right. But conversely, the same thing happens when they don't, like I have people that I've said, you know, I, I make a position change. I'm like, a good example is somebody who's trained for a whole year on their trainer with one hood that is slid two oh, centimeters sure. lower than the other. Yeah, like a centimeter lower or whatever. And you you they walk into the bike and immediately you see the hoods. You're like, holy crap, how do you ride like that? And they're like, oh. Yeah, I guess you're right. That one is a little lower. You're like, yeah, it's way lower. <laughs> <laughs> it's way lower. And then you fix it, and all of a sudden they have shoulder pain. Exactly. Because, of course, oh. they've been riding that way for a year. Yeah. And, and so, now the shoulders are in better position, but yes, exactly. 
That's a great example. So that's the kind of thing where it's like, it's going to take time. And the stuff that you guys do specifically, it does, it's like, you know, first of all, you know, you guys get more complex people. They're seeking you out because they've seen the, the slew of fitters that have been able to get it. They have higher expectations yeah. and they do want it to be, they want a pink cloud experience. And mm. the truth is when you've had chronic issues that have been ongoing for a long time and a lot of fitters haven't been able to fix it and somebody, and you go to see one of you guys, you kind of got to accept that it may not feel great right away, but it's going to work. And that's what I like about the way that you guys go about stuff with the hog stuff. Mm. Um, and I think you each have your own individual stuff, but some of it is like, okay, this is definitely a positive test. It may not be positive in a week, but right now this is what we're going to do. Yep. And if you go out and ride and say it feels, I don't know, it's kind of like, what? because I don't think it ever feels really horrible. It's just different. Yeah. It's different. Yeah. Part of the reason they needed the change is because they feel it is different. Like the guys that come to me and are like, no, 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 my saddle's got to be, and you move it one millimeter, like that doesn't feel right. I'm like, okay, well, listen, it's one millimeter. And if your body doesn't like that, then you need to do something to make it so your body has a broader range exactly. of what is acceptable on the bike. Yeah. Yeah. So the people that have the chronic stuff that have been going on for a long time, and then you make it better and it's a one shot deal. And there's a lot of stuff that happened to the shoes and a lot of stuff that happened to the position. And they probably feel their saddles too low because mm -hmm. that's just something that people do all the time. And, uh, <laughs> and they go out and ride and a week later, they're like, I can't stand my position. It's not, it's not a week. It, if it, how long did it take you to get there? Right. You know, how long right. did it take yeah. you to make that appointment? I have that discussion a lot with clients. They come to me, you know, they've been, like you said, I end up seeing a lot of people who have been through the ringer, so to speak. They've been seeing several fitters and they've got a chronic whatever that's bothering them, you know, knee pain, back pain, shoulder pain, you know, uh, discomfort in the saddle. That's one that's been recurring recently. I've seen a lot of people with chronic saddle stuff. They just can't find the right saddle. Um, and I'll say to him, look, I mean, how long have you been battling this problem? Oh, I don't know, a year and a half. It's like, okay. So even if I gave you a silver bullet, like magic, magic bullet, perfect solution today, do you think that 18 months of pain is going to go away in one bike fit? Like, even if things are optimized, there's still the memory of the pain. There's the trauma, the tissue, you know, your fascia stores that energy of that constant pain. Pain is yang by definition. Pain stresses out the nervous system. So your body's been in pain for 18 months. Like that's a long time. So even if we optimized mechanically the cause, we'll say of this fit, which it's very rare that mechanically the cause, the, the, it's very rare that the cause is exclusively mechanically. Of course it can happen. You get those cases, but most of the time it's a combination of factors. It's chronic dehydration and poor nutrition. And we're training for three Ironmans and we're just going to hammer our body into oblivion and the bike position wasn't quite right. And I'm carrying this emotion in my, in my head that I'm trying to exercise my exorcise with my exercise. <laughs> right. And we got all these factors that co co mingle to create this condition of chronic, you know, it band pain. That's just searingly ridiculous. And it's pulling my patella out of tracking properly and shit's on fire everywhere. And that's it. And I've been to massages and this and that, and nothing fixes it. And so you gotta, you gotta, I have to take a few moments to explain to the client, like you have manifested this injury. It doesn't, you don't manifest an injury like this overnight. You know, maybe it feels like you did because one day everything was fine. And the next day you went for a five hour bike ride and things hurt. So it feels like it just suddenly came out of nowhere, but that's not the way these work. These things, 
you, you grew this over time. This is a plant you've been growing. You grew the plant. <laughs> now we have to take time to dig the weeds out, to take care of your baobabs. You know, we have to go into the yard and dig way deep down into that earth and dig out every root, every single, otherwise it's just going to grow back. Right. So that's an important point. I think with chronic injuries so that we have to educate our clients about the nature of how they grew that injury. So if it takes 18 months to grow it, how many months? And I'll, I'll just ask them, how many months do you think it's going to take to get rid of it or how long? And sometimes they'll be like, I don't know, a week. And I'll be like 18 months on the front end and one week on the back. Really? And they're like, oh yeah, I see your point. A month. I'm like, eh, maybe three months if everything's optimal. But if you're going to be a knucklehead and go ride your bike hundred miles this Saturday, exactly. you might bump it out a little ways, even if things are air quotes fixed. And they're like, oh yeah, the light bulb goes off. Right. So well, I think that, and the analogy that you use for the weeds is fantastic because I tell people when I'm done, I'm like, okay, take it easy, but I've got a blah, blah, blah. No, take it easy. But it position feels great. No, take it easy. I'm like, what you need to think, you know, when the grass is just coming up, I use the grass analogy all the time. I said, you gotta, you can't just go walk on the new grass. You know, you're growing new grass. You got to let that grass get strong. Mm -hmm. So follow your, get eat enough get enough nutrition, get enough good of, of water and slowly prepare yourself to start walking on the grass again, mm -hmm. because that's what happens. It's, it, it can't like, and that's that, but that's the mental part of it. Right. So <clears throat> what is it about me that has to go out that can't let what's happening to make my body better, take the time. Yes. To heal. Yes. This goes right back to your point about how when you were younger and I, I went through a similar phase where it was just like, more, 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 do the things, accomplish, ride the miles, you know, race the races, smash the people on group rides and that, and, and your recognition, you couldn't sit still. And I think that's a really important concept for a lot of endurance athletes to kind of get their heads wrapped around. It's like witness your own behavior. You know, are you, are you running or riding, running metaphorically from something? What are you trying to cover up in your own mental space that you don't want to sit and be still with and look at? And I think there's a weird parallel in the world of um, endurance athlete diets. They tend to be so carbohydrate heavy because of course you're emptying your glycogen tank all the time. You're doing the intervals, you're doing sprints, you're doing the criteriums, blah, blah, blah. So it's carbs, 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 right? And that that's a very like, I've got the engine running super hot. I'm the furnace is on and the flames are high. So we're throwing the fuel in and we have to do that to keep the furnace going. Okay. That's part of the myopic focus of being an endurance athlete. And it kind of comes with the territory. Right. But then there's a point when that shifts or should shift for most people, as you evolve and you start to exercise less and run that furnace less hot. And if you keep eating the same way, which we tend to do as humans, because we tend to like our foods that we like, you know, pasta, pizza, whatever. So then you become endurance um, exercise changes and that relationship changes in your life. You're still eating all these carbs, carbs, carbs. What do you get? You get blood sugar issues, right? You get these insulin spikes because you're not, when you're on the bike, you can eat the sugariest stuff in the world and the insulin response is dulled. So it works out. Usually it just goes straight to your muscles for fuel, but you do that off the bike and you've got big problems really quickly. You've got weight gain and insulin, insulin spikes and moodiness and hunger and all these challenges, right? So we have this migration uh, of endurance athletes to discover keto. And it's like, man, how am I going to heal my 30 years of racing 
with all this carb swing and this blood sugar issues, I'm going to eat avocados and bacon and this Absolutely. is going and goat cheese, right? And it's going to be the best thing ever. And now my energy levels are, are grounded and I can do all the things and I'm exercising less, but I'm not doing this all the time. And I have my normal job and my wife, and she's not always yelling at me because I'm hangry all the time or whatever, or my husband. And that's this migration that happens from, and now keto is the new best thing. But then over time, you discover the pitfalls of keto and any dogmatic belief about diet or extreme dietary approach eventually, in my experience, tends to cause problems for people. It doesn't matter if we're talking about keto, vegan, carnivore, uh, Atkins, pick your poison. Like anytime diet swings from one extreme to the other, ultimately it becomes a problem over a long enough timeline. In my experience, for most people, not for everyone, but for the vast majority of humans, and it comes back to the middle way, the middle path, have some carbs, have some protein, have some fats, eat healthy versions of all those and balance in all things, right? And um, crap, now I totally forgot where I was going with that analogy. There was a parallel I was going to make there. What was it? Uh, it was the evolution of diet. And oh, no, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> No, I think, I think it's, I think that the nervous system, I, I think you're right. I think, and I think that the nervous system dislikes being cornered mm -hmm. with anything. If I say, this is how I'm going to be eat and this is the way I'm going to eat. There's a part of my human condition, which says, I don't like that, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and with regards to like the, the, the riding all the time, it's ironic to me, you know, when I, I used to sponsor people, you know, just, and a lot of it was mental. And I said, you know, the best thing you can do for your racing is sit absolutely still for two hours. That was my parallel. Thank you. Yeah, you brought it to me. There's an evolution of go, 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 go all the time, that constant motion. And as endurance athletes, we, we habituate ourselves to motion. And maybe that drive for all that motion is, I hate to say it, but if you look at all the athletes as, a, as an easy example, then we can expand that. But you look at all the athletes who are hyper, hyper successful at their sport, whether it's cycling, or basketball or football or whatever, when you begin to learn their story, most of the time that drive is brought out of pain or tragedy. It's yeah. very rare that someone's that driven to prove that they're one of the best in the world at anything, you know, whether it's an athlete or running, being CEO of a massive corporation or being a politician, it's very rare that that drive comes from just like waking up one day and being like, I'm going to be the best in the world at something. Usually it's, man, I got my ass kicked by whatever childhood tragedy, you know, abuse, uh, you know, whatever people, their pain, their lesson is. And that forges that path and gives them that drive to get there. But they're they're So in the evolution of the athletic journey, when we start to heal our own childhood wounds or our own young person wound, whatever that happened years ago, or maybe it's adult wounds, we start to realize like, okay, now my drive is illuminated. The, the source of my drive has been illuminated by this tragedy, in my life, this pain, and I'm healing that pain. And the reason, the, the way I've been doing that or negotiating, maybe camouflaging that is by movement. So just as someone progresses from carbs, carbs, carbs to keto, it tends to be a very typical progression as they evolve in the athletic world, they learn to stop moving all the time and they learn to be still. And sometimes that's what my athletes need more than anything. Just like, you think you're disciplined. You think you're so tough because you can do all these intervals and stuff. Dude, that's the easy part. Like 
we all love to go smash ourselves going up a mountain and do intervals or do a time trial. Like that's fun. That doesn't make you disciplined. That makes you a bike dork. <laughs> and I, I'm put myself in that category. You want to prove to me you're disciplined, sit your ass on that cushion for 60 minutes straight and don't move and be with yourself, be with your breath, witness your thoughts. What comes up? How uncomfortable are you? How stressed out are you by that? That stillness. Can you do that? And that's the contract. That's the evolution or it's one evolution. I'm not saying it's the end goal. I'm not saying it's perfect for everybody. It's but, clearly an evolution for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the same is true with resting. Resting is training. Why is it so much harder? And this is, for, I'm speaking for myself. So when I rode, I rode all the time. Luckily, mm -hmm. I didn't need to take a lot of days off, but I just, I mean, I could have done better. I would have done much better racing if I had given myself days off. I knew it, mm -hmm. but I didn't want to. Yeah. And I would justify it and say, well, no, I'm not going to take a day off when it's sunny out. But the reality is, is that I wasn't right unless I was riding, right? I mean, I had to get a little, get a little ride in there, but, yeah. um, but, and that's, that's a good, it's, it's, it's interesting because it seems like we're like, we, the heart, one of the hardest things we have that we, one of the hardest things for us is to stop doing intervals before we're totally destroyed or yeah. to rest enough or rest enough between intervals. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean this like, okay, you've got a, I did this blood muscle oxygen thing and I was watching, um, the, you know, the, it watches, it's SMO2. So it, yeah. when you're, when you, when you're fully oxygenated, your legs are ready to go. When you kill it, you suck all the oxygen out and then they, they come back up mm -hmm. and I'm like, fuck, come on up, man. What's the oxygen coming up so I can do another interval? What is no, that about? Why am I in a hurry to do another interval? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like. It, it's just, it's illogical, but it's true. Like, why am I not hurry to do another interval? Why don't I want to take a day off? Why do I have to be exhausted to feel, why do I wait until I need a day off mm. to take a day off versus taking off a day, taking a day off when I still feel good? It's, it's so true. It's like, <clears throat> I think it has to do with that sense of accomplishment. We do the things, the yang, the, that's the point of exercise in our heads. We were convinced or conditioned societally that we have to do the things, you know, when we're doing the five minute interval and we cross the, you know, the last 30 seconds, we're just bleeding out our eyeballs and everything's on fire, legs and lungs. And you're just fighting the bike and pushing so hard. It's that effort that to us is what we take away is the value of exercising. It proves our worthwhile ness as cyclists. It proves our, our stature, our stamina, our toughness. Um, but of course the truth is that we have to complement that with the yin of rest the recovery, whether that's between the actual intervals or whether it's taking the next day off and letting your body rejuvenate. That's how you get stronger. You don't get stronger when you do an interval. That's the tearing down. <laughs> right? The body, you have to give the body time to respond to that. That's why the best coaches, of course, know that, you know, rest is absolute. It's the most crucial part of any training program. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. That's so funny. You said that about the intervals. I was just having a meeting with one of my clients that I coached the other day and he was like, he was talking about cooking and he was like, yeah, I, I don't like to cook this type of food because I always burn it. And I was like, let's unpack that. Why do you always burn <laughs> what, what you're cooking? And he was like, well, I think I just, I, and, and basically what he admitted to me was he said that he was in a hurry and he felt like he had to time optimize everything and he wanted it done now. So he turned the heat up exactly. and compulsively turned the heat up too high. And I'm like, so then he, then he burned his food and then he wouldn't eat it because it sucked. So then he was hungry and then he was you know, started the cycle of like ah, frustration about cooking. I was like, why are you trying to time optimize cooking? Like, what does it take you like 
a minute and a half longer to cook something on medium than it does on high. But, and he, he thought about it and he, he kind of laughed. He realized how ridiculous it was, but it's just funny. Well, it took me until I was an adult to realize that. So in our family, we, I grew up in New York city and my dad wasn't around a lot, but when he was around, you know, we, he, he, he convinced us that the best way to grill food was to take it directly out of the freezer and cook it on the grill. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, wow, you're right, man. But the, the steaks are just, they're just absolutely burnt on the outside, but still a little red on the inside. Oh, and he sold it. He sold it to us. And then I'm sitting, I'm like, I'm in the, re I get older and I move out and I'm in, I'm in a restaurant and I'm like, yeah, I want it burnt on the outside and pink on the inside. And they look at me like, are you retarded? And I'm like, no, no, that's how I like it. That's how, that's how it should be done. Cause my dad said so. <laughs> you know I mean? So it's, it's all the, and that's the justification. You know, I think that happens a lot of times with the, with the mm -hmm. wrestling too is like, oh no, I slept 12 hours yesterday, so I'm good to go. But yep. for me, with the triathletes, you know, it, it, this actually since COVID, I've had a lot less triathletes, but a large majority of my clients were triathletes. And mm. what I observed was that at some point, um, there will be IT band pain with overtraining. Mm -hmm. It just seems like when there's too much, that's the first thing to pop. Oh, mm. my IT band is hurting me. Okay, well, how long until you start tapering for your Ironman? Yeah. Two weeks. Well, maybe I bet you if you taper started tapering now, that hamstring, that IT band would get better. And it would. And that's where I learned about the biofeedback. Actually, I started doing the EMG biofeedback because these people would come in and they'd look, you know, they were, you know, there's a their skin changes tone when there's a at a certain point, you know, they're kind of grayish. And it's just that, you know, like you can tell when somebody's anorexic mm -hmm. by the way that their their skin is, you know, there's a skin change and, and you see a little bit more that you shouldn't probably be seeing and stuff like that. It's mm -hmm. a it's more than just weight. And I think when somebody's really, when, when I see these people, I can identify an overtrained person easily because there's something, there's a different a change in the color of their skin. There's a, mm -hmm. they, they typically don't stand as tall, mm -hmm. you know, like there's a little, they're a little bit more bent over and, yep. and there's this thing happening, you know, like this energy, this intensity that is, mm -hmm. um, it's like a vortice of the whole thing. And, you know, and I, they, you know, Typically, when Ironmans were when we're getting close to Ironmans, they come in, you know, oh my God, everything's great. My training's been going great. I have an I, my left IT band started to hurt, or my right knee started to hurt. They get on the bike, nothing's changed, but you can see that lateral line firing a whole lot more. You can see their ass is half the size of what it was when you saw them last time. Right. And and but that's but my coach said I have to do this, you know, and I'm like, well, man, you look like you are. You're wringing it. You're wrung everything out of that towel, man. Yeah. Um. Mm. So I think that I think that that's that's definitely, and it's also very hard to fit around that. You know, fitting around the overtrained person is very mm -hmm. very hard because, yeah. In my opinion, the body's rejecting it. The body, the body is giving us clues that all those all these things like somebody's like perfect physique, nice and symmetrical, and just different points of the body hurting. You know, oh, this feels great. Go out, starting to hurt make an adjustment. This feels great. Go out, you know, three, four rides and start to hurt. It's like the body's just screaming, mm -hmm. you know, stop. But I can't, but I can't say that to a client without, without, without offending them because I'm not a coach, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, maybe, I don't know. I would argue that if that's your hit and that's your intuition to really help the client the best, I would, I would just say, look, man, I don't think we need to change anything on your bike. I'd be, I I'm saying, yeah, yeah. Well, this, but you need to go home and sleep like an extra hour a night for the next two weeks, and you need to eat some liver. 
and get some nutrient dense food in your diet, you need to replenish and regenerate your body and stop riding and running and swimming so much and start sitting and working on some breath work. Like I'm not saying stop anyway, I'm just making things up, but no, I think you're right. I wouldn't be afraid to tell a client that because bike fitting ultimately when you, when you take anything and scale it to the point where you can really help the client in the most, in the best possible way, it goes well beyond simply adjusting saddle height or even discussing about how many hours a week they're training because all stress summates. And it's all the there, yeah. Right? The phantom knee pain. I get a lot of people that yeah. have a phantom knee pain and I, and I actually think that there's a, a high positive correlation in my experience between chondromalacia and stress. Hmm. When somebody's, I get a lot of cyclists, not a lot, but when I get a cyclist coming who says they have chondromalacia and I look at their tracking and I'm like, mm, what's going on there? Hmm. Um, and there's, when I ask them if you had any major stresses in your life, you know, there's frequently job changes, they've yeah. moved, they've lost somebody, somebody's died. Um, yeah. I think that the, the, and that's also why I think, you know, when everything's groovy, like when I'm optimistic about life, I have less symptoms or people are optimistic about life. When we're optimistic, like, why is it that like for me personally, it can be gloomy outside and I'm like, yeah, well, I really don't care what I do today. And then this, if the sun comes out halfway through the day, I'm like, I'm out, yep. you know? Yep. So the mind has got such a huge, has, has so much control. I, I believe on, or, or well, it controls everything obviously, but I think yeah. it has a huge impact on what. And we tend to associate that. Yeah. We tend to think like, Oh, my body's my body and my mind is my mind. And, you know, it's gloomy out, but I'm, I got to do intervals today. And yeah. And when you're young and you're headstrong for a man with a, with a why there's almost always a how, right. If you're really determined and you really are going to train for that state time trial championships or whatever, then on it's piss and rain, you find a way. And there's something admirable about that. There's something driven about that. That's what makes exceptional performances, but there are times when it's like, okay, I got to recognize what's really going on here and take a step back and not, not, I mean, I mean, you know, we're all on our path and we have to figure things out and learn our lessons. But I used to beat myself up so hard when I was a 26 year old and I didn't get a workout done because it was pissing rain and I couldn't muster the motivation to do the effort on the trainer or the rollers or whatever. And now I look back on that and it's like, I guess that's, that's maybe hopefully my lesson. I can teach my clients like, Hey man, give yourself a break. Like it's okay. Nothing, no one's going to die. Like how many thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars are you being paid to ride your bike next week at state time trial championships? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point too. That's a whole nother conversation. That, right. Right. Yeah, the chasing the chasing that, you know, when people ask me about tri shoes, for instance, they're like, well, why should, what's the difference between a tri shoe and a regular shoe? And I said, well, the regular shoe, I typically prefer a regular shoe over a tri shoe. Mm -hmm. Well, but what about my transition? Are you four, are you four seconds off the, from winning? You know right. I mean? Right. It, it, the, the ultimately, the majority of my clients are amateur or amateur elite cyclists, mm -hmm. and I think that, that that in my opinion, the people that that it should be fun. Mm -hmm. It should be fun. I mean, if I'm if I'm getting paid, then I got to do it. I right. got to do whatever the fuck. If if it, if it means that if if I have to ride that position that looks absolutely perfectly arrow or have my hands up in some crazy mantis shit or whatever, that's the deal. You got to do it. But if not, why not, why not like have fun with yes. it and enjoy it? And you might just be spectacular. You know, a lot of the people that do have that like fun, there's this woman out here, Kathy Instead, she's been a triathlete, professional triathlete forever. And uh, 
she just kills it, but she's always smiling. Mm. If you look at her and she doesn't have like, she's just a happy person. She does it. She's, she's also a very gifted athlete, but she went, she wins like everything. She just goes out. She's, she, once she contacted me and said, she said, you know, Hey, would you think this bike would work for me? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, okay, well, I think I'll do this triathlon then because they're giving it away. It, it goes to the winner. And I was yeah. like, well, good for you to have that kind of confidence. But, but yeah. it wasn't like she was arrogant. She was just happy person, you know, right. out doing it. Yeah. So I think that has a huge, that has a huge, a huge impact. And if, and if we're, when I, when people come into me and they ask me about ceramic seed bear, speed bearings or yep. all that shit, I'm like, man, you know, or the integrated cockpit bikes with the base bar. Yeah. You know, no, yeah. not a good idea. You know, I tell people, if you want to get it, if you want to do, if you want to get an integrated cockpit bike, just wait, really hone in your position, learn what it feels like to ride a bike where you want to ride it and then see if you can make it work. Yeah. You know, yeah. and then, and then it's a wise decision, but for, especially for like triathletes, man, there's a, it takes a year or two for them to actually settle into a real position, mm-hmm. you know, because it's just so being in a horizontal from that horizontal plane is so different. It's a, I mean, that's cycling. Like you, you were really adapting our bodies to riding bikes and that adaptation comes at a price. It comes at a postural price. It comes at a stability price. And that's why I'm constantly on my drum about <clears throat> how people need to offset the adaptations to bikes with real world activities. You know, if you can't sit in a deep squat for five minutes without your Achilles splitting off the back of your heel bone or with your, without your knees freaking out or your hips freaking out, then you, you've got some work to do. If you can't run for 30 minutes on uneven terrain, not, not sprint, not, you know, I'm not talking like run race pace, but just jog on uneven, uneven terrain without back pain or hip pain. That's a warning sign that your function is really in trouble. You know, if you can't adjust your cleats two or three millimeters to one side or the other without instant IT band drama or medial knee, you know, VMO freaking out, that's a warning sign. Like you got some work to do. You're way too adapted to this sagittal plane clipped in movement. And people, I don't think they really recognize how, how screwed up cycling can make your body over the long term. I love the sport. It's amazing. But now I'm on a mission to offset all these things that I have spent years building in my body and health is everything. And you don't have baseline health. Like yeah. uh, two of my life goals, spend as little time as possible in a car and as little time as possible in a hospital. And yeah. that's yeah. right. Yeah, like, totally. And I, it's funny that you said that about the, you know, it is, it's like, I remember having a conversation with Choate one day about something and I said, well, it's going to take him a while to acclimate. And he said, no, uh, you can't acclimate. You you accommodate. It's an accommodative movement pattern. Yep. That you yep. Never, you can't ever integrate. You're never going to be that. And mm-hmm. and and it's true. And I knew that at the time, but I never really thought about it too much. But it isn't. It's not posturally correct. There's nothing correct about riding a bike. Riding a bike, in many ways, is bad for you. For sure. Yes. So the my job as a fitter is I'll never go beyond what I think is appropriate from a biomechanics standpoint. You know, if I see somebody. Uh, bouncing around because they're too slammed on the saddle or if I, or they've got something going on that their knee is not able to even follow that lineup because their hips too close. Yep. Um, but that's where the brakes go on. And I think that the, um, that with dealing with physical, I get, there are a lot of physical therapists out here through bike fitting and well, it is not, it is not, I don't believe having excellent posture 
is going to make an excellent bicycle posture. Right. And so when I, I had a guy, you know, and of course, you know, that's the, the shoulders back and down, anteriorly rotated pelvis, yeah. deep stabilizers of the spine, all that stuff on solid like a rock. And, uh, and it's hard to work around that, you know, because they're, they're, you know, oh, your glute medius. Well, the glute medius doesn't pull the same in a horizontal position mm-hmm. as it does. And as a matter of fact, anteriorly rotating your pelvis is going to make it fire less effectively and letting your pelvis be in a neutral position because now you've taken it deeper into that horizontal plane, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can test that with your hands, whatever. But I had a guy, a good example is have, I had a professional guy raced professionally for 19 years, coming to me, he's retired for a long time. And I fit him for a bike and he enjoyed it and started racing a little bit out in New York, came back, um, saw a physical therapist out here, said I got back in knee pain, something's wrong with the fit. And he came in and he was riding his bike in that anatomically correct standing posture severe anterior rotation rotating over rotating yeah but but not just it's not the anterior rotation that's the problem it's that it's when the spine locks it when the when those facets in the spine are locked up i think like when i really arch my back everything locks up there's no more softness to it so so i saw him on the bike and i said what's going on and he said well my physical therapist said this is how i should ride my bike uh, and i said okay stop it for a second he stopped he said how did your knee and back feel he says it feels great I said, okay, well, let you race professionally for 19 years with no injuries or problems. And you went to somebody and let them tell you how to ride your bike, which obviously you did well if you race that long with no injuries or problems. Mm-hmm. And that person doesn't ride a bike. Right. You know, and like, and the light bulb went off. And that's why I think it's, you know, what you said about the deep squat. That's a smart move because you are doing to the joints. You're putting them in a position that they need. You need to be able to have that. Right. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to, what other activity does the thigh get that close to our belly on a continuum? Continuous right. basis. I mean, it's really a funky thing to do. That's why I think the measurement systems don't work because you can take all the limb member- measurements, but as soon as somebody sits on a bike and bends over, the length of their spine changes. Mm-hmm. It's drastically different between people. Of course. Um, and, and, you know, you hear people say, well, it's because of the hamstring tension. I don't buy the hamstring th- th- thing. I think it's a component of everything, but we just don't all bend the same. Mm-hmm. It's just not how we roll. And I think that the uh, that that trying to trying to uh, trying to adopt good posture on a bike can be more problematic. I see more weight in the hands. I see shoulder and neck problems. I see that one side does it better than the other. Mm-hmm. You know, like one anterior, one pelvis tends to enter. So I think having somebody who who's like you know when you say good bike posture when you are doing it, I'm assuming that you're going in there like touching and letting them get the feedback of what it is so that they're learning it. It isn't, this is how you stand. This is how you ride. And I, and it's, and it's, you know, I look at people like Froome and I'm like, Oh my God, it's back, you know, but look at the angle of his pelvis. I mean, it's, it may, it's logical. I mean, he can get, you can get a lot of glute recruitment. Your range of motion is fantastic when your pelvis is posteriorly rotated. Well, it's not really posteriorly, he's really low, but he has a tremendous range of motion at the top of the pedal stroke mm-hmm. because of the way his spine is shaped. So it serves a function. It yeah. has some kind of purpose. Is it good for you? I don't think not. so. Is it, <laughs> is it, is it, um, is it the best posture to put somebody in that, that is, that is, uh, is a coach? I wouldn't, I don't know that's true, but if you're making money and race winning tours, it probably is pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean? To that end. Yeah. 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 And that's, I mean, by definition, any elite sports person, a professional sports person is myopically focused on their goal 
they, that comes at a price. And, and we tend to think like, Oh, athletes make sacrifices. You know, and we think like, Oh, that means they're not eating pizza and drinking beer or, you know, running around in college, banging, banging people and sleeping around or whatever it is we imagine they're giving up. Right. Or maybe they're missing their friend's weddings because they're at a bike race. Right. But, um, you're also giving up some baseline health. When you choose to become an Ironman triathlete or try to win a grand tour, you're sacrificing, you are undermining your baseline health on some level, the pyramid of your basic health. Like it is not a healthy thing to have an emaciated upper body to the point where you can barely lift a six kilogram road bike over your head to get it on a roof rack. That's not healthy. You know, how many world tour ride, like let's have a pull-up contest for their world tour riders and just all have a giggle. It's like basic human health. Can you support your own body weight in a horizontal position? If you fell on your face, could you push yourself up? I mean, can you sit in a deep squat? These are the litmus tests that interest me as a fitter to challenge clients to make sure that their health isn't their physical mechanical health, their, their biomechanical health isn't degenerating to the point where they can't do basic things like run for a half an hour. I'm not saying you have to go run for six hours, whatever, but like there's stuff we should be able to do. Um, so, and, and that's part of the misconception in that, you know, as you ride a bike, it makes you healthier and stronger. And I, my, my, the model I always give people is, yeah, if you're sedentary on the couch and you're overweight and you're doing nothing, you're eating pizza and watching video games, playing video games, and you get on a bike, you start riding, your health will increase. Your aerobic system will get stronger. Your muscles will become conditioned to handle load. You know, you're, you're, you'll incur some shoulder strengthening through having to hold the bike, the body in that hor more horizontalized position, etc. But over a long enough timeline, then if you only do that, your health will plateau and then it will start to degenerate. I agree. Get worse. If um, you only do that, yep. If you only cycle. Yeah. So it's um, you know, all things, balance in all things, right? You've got to offset the cycling with other activities. And the other thing I'll point out is that it's a kind of a bummer. And I was heard an interview with Kelly Starrett where a guy pointed this out to him. He said, look, if Sitting is the new smoking. Well, I hate to break it to you, but cycling is just more sitting. That's what cycling is. It's a hip hinge. Yeah, we're lunging during that cycling. Yes, we're raising our heart rate and our respiration rate. We are taxing our muscles and our aerobic system, but fundamentally, it's sitting. So people sit at a desk all day and they recognize that's bad. And then they get on a bike and they do more sitting. It's like, ooh, danger zone. <laughs> Let's get some prone cobra in there, buddy. <laughs> you know, we got to get some extension happening. We got to move the body in different planes frontal plane, et cetera. So, yeah. Well, I think, I actually think that's something that would be interesting. Uh, I've, I've been badgering Shout for a while about like, what, what are the, what are the most basic fundamental foundation exercises yeah. that cyclists can do? And what yeah. you're talking about is what basic fundamental movement patterns best counteract what happens from cycling. Yes. And I think the two having those on either end, I don't know what they are. I mean, I have, I think that, what you said, like, can you support your weight? Do you have rotation? Do you stand with your head over your hips? Things like that, all very, very important. But like the exercises, where's the exercises? Where's the literature? Where's, where in a magazine do they talk about? I mean, they've got like, here's the back brace, you know, bicycling and everything. This back brace is great. That back brace, this, this back, this back bolster is the best thing you can do for your low back. No. It's, I don't believe that's true because all you're doing is you're laying over it. You're not building the muscles or doing anything for the stabilizers to help support each vertebrae relative to the next. You're just, right. I don't think it's a bad thing. 
But I'm saying like, I, I would love to see, I would love it if you guys did something, one or both of you did something that said, these are some really basic things you can do. I don't want to hold bike on cycling anatomy. I just want to know some basic things that I can give my clients and say, you know what? Okay, you're, 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 you're into this now. I can see that your body's, you're starting to really look like a cyclist. That's good and it's bad. Here are some things you can do off the bike to make sure that this doesn't become a long-term problem because they will, once that, once, once they start to go down, anything they can do off the bike to help actually yep. makes them go back up. Yep. Like I see them dropping down, they, they're into it and they hit the peak. I'm a cyclist now. And they got all the attributes of a cyclist and then it starts to, they, it starts to get, the health starts to decline. But if they do a little bit of this stuff, it goes up. The problem is, what is that stuff? You yes. know, like with glute exercises, when I see people doing squats, I'm like, well, I see that, but there's a lot of hip, that hip hinges isn't happening on a bike. So is it better to like sit on your heels and then try to stand up using your glutes? I don't know, mm. you know, but I think that like, where is it? What is the most, the simplest yes. bang for your buck, you know, for strengthening, creating that foundation, that's that stable pelvis. Yep. And then countering the stuff that happens that's yeah that's a really interesting idea i had very similar thoughts recently i was thinking actually my concept and maybe i'll throw this out there i was going to do my best to make my list of essential off the bike exercises that basically like you know there's this balance between treating every every fit is an individual like you said you have one person who comes in and you fix the the you know collapsing knee with this wedging and then sure enough as soon as you make the error of jumping to that conclusion. Like, Oh, I can fix every valgus knee with this type of technique. You got five clients who walk in the door and you try and it doesn't work at all. <laughs> and that's just the beautiful, um, fractal nature of humans. You know, you unpeel the layers of the onion and, and every person's outcome is just slightly different. It's the, the fingerprint aspect of fitting. But that said, we balance that with, okay, we do definitely see certain trends in cycling, right? Not again, it's a trend. It's not a rule. But in general, I, ha I have a rash of clients who are too posteriorly rotated on the bike. So they've got too much spinal flexion, too much lumbar flexion happening. We've got protracted shoulder blades. We've got a tendency towards forward head posture because, of course, the cervical extension is so excessive, right? Because you're always looking up the road and verticalizing the face. We've got a tendency towards far more common for internal rotation of the, fem of the femoral head and medial tracking of the knees, right? So... And we've got, of course, pronated arches and, you know, this smashed foot that's kind of um, obliterated that subtalar neutral or, or closer to neutral and a little bit better force production at the foot. So we can make a program that checks all those boxes. And what I'd like to do is come up with mine and write it out and then throw it out there and have everybody come on and just annihilate it, refine it, slaughter it, or agree with it, whatever is the case. It doesn't really matter. I don't really care. You know, I can be wrong on every single exercise in the prescription of that exercise, like a specific program and say, here's our baseline. You're a bike rider, but you want to be able to actually do a couple pull-ups and have longevity in your health and have bone density. Here's your checklist. We're going to work you up to running for 30 minutes on uneven ground on, on minimal shoes. No hokas allowed. Burn those things. We're going to have you, you know, do this type of shoulder posture exercise. We're going to have you do these types of pull-ups, push-ups, and dips, whatever. And it's simple. It's actionable. It's, it's mastery of body weight before we progress to adding weight, right? These types of concepts. And then have, you know, 
Jess Elliott come on and, and Jesse Stenzlin and the strength experts I consulted, you know, talk to Charlie Merrill, talk to Choate, um, talk to Jerry and Steve and have them just slaughter it and refine it. I think that'd be a really cool project. I like I it. Be, I think that would be an awesome project. I think it's also very much needed in the industry. We spend a lot of time talking. We, you know, we're, the industry is, is infatuated with technology. Of course, you know, bicycles, they, they can technologically advance and they're very cool, but, and fitting and stuff like that. But what about being human, a human doing this? Like I always, I was, I've thought about since this pandemic thing, I'm like, God, I should have written a short book on beginner cycling, mm-hmm. going to a bike shop, buy a bike, don't make it too fancy, get platform shoes, get mm-hmm. platform shoe pedals and go ride your bike and smile. Look at the way a child rides their bike and try to ride a bike like that. Put the middle of your foot on the pedal. You're not going to melt. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and that's, that's the kind of thinking that I, that I think is missing in this too, is that, you know, yes, we spend a lot of time on bikes and there are a lot of people that have very heady arguments about all the right things you should do. Mm-hmm. to build the strength for the bike and or counteract what happens on the bike after, but it's all too much, yeah. too much, too many things, too complex, you know, really having those people like, this is what works best for me. This is what works best for me. This is what works best for me. All those things combined. I mean, yeah. and finding out which of those are the most effective and then simplifying them in a way that it's doable. Pulling the knowledge of the experts. Yeah. That's a great idea. I like it. Thanks for the inspiration. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll work on that. Um, I want to be respectful of your time, Chris. I know you're in Minnesota, so it's noon there. I think maybe you have some other stuff to do. How are you looking on time right now? I got to work. I got to go to work. You got to go to work. Okay, cool. All right. I really did enjoy talking to you a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I've really never talked to you very much. I know we haven't had too many conversations, so this has been great. I really appreciate you taking the time. And um, just before we wrap up, uh, please tell people where they can find out more about you, your website. Are you on the Facebooks or the Instagrams or any socials, or do you not do that stuff? Let people know. I don't, I don't do any, uh, I don't do any social stuff. I mean, I have a personal social, but that's just to look at kittens and stuff. Kittens and dogs. Okay. My, cool. uh, website's bicycle fit guru. Yep. Um, yeah. All right. I'll put a link to that in the show notes so people can come find out more about you if they want to and, and, uh, check out your methods. Cool, man. Thanks, Colby. All right. Thank you very much. All right. You too. Okay. Bye. Attention, Space Monkeys. Public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor. So don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. I don't play either of those characters on the internet which again is self-evident. Gratitude.